from the high desert in the great American Southwest. I want to bid you good evening and good morning and welcome. tugging from Jupiter's three other large moons. As those moons swung close to Europa, then retreated, the varying gravitational forces squeezed and relaxed the rocky core, heating it in the process. Heat, folks. This, he said, would melt the icy crust that apparently cloaks the Jovian moon. Only the outer surface, which is exposed to the intense cold of space, remains frozen. The ocean below could easily contain more water than is in Earth's oceans. And like in Earth's oceans, he went on, life could exist near volcanic venting. Hoagland's ideas about Europa appeared as the cover story in the January 1980 issue of Star and Sky. Given the potential importance of the concept, I issued a news release to coincide with the issue's publication. It was picked up by all the major news services, and that story ran in hundreds of newspapers. It appeared in the Toronto Star on December 27, 1979, under the headline, By Jupiter. Maybe there is alien life in space. Then, instead of Hoagland's ideas appearing in textbooks, NASA brochures and other publications about the solar system, they were ignored. Today, Hoagland almost never receives credit for his Europa work. Why? He was never part of the establishment science, and he's moved much further from it than he was back in 1979. Today, he champions the idea that aliens build a rock formation called the face on Mars. Few scientists want to even be remotely associated with a, in quote, kook, no matter how brilliant his ideas. Uh, once again, of course, the American press, once they have decided upon the way a story shall be told, uh, are never bothered by anything so trivial as the facts, something I've, I've learned uh, uh, very carefully over the last several weeks. Uh, however, it should be noted that on Nightline some nights ago, Ted Koppel gave Richard C. Hoagland a long-deserved credit uh, for having uh, uh, come up first with the theory of what Europa really was all about. And well-deserved credit it is. Here from New York City is Richard C. Hoagland. Hi, Richard. <laughs> Good evening, Art. Good evening. Well, that's really nice because Terry was the first one to appreciate this kook. <laughs> In all his kookiness, 
you know, it, it was very heady stuff because at that point we were very naive. We really felt that if we found extraordinary things, we could lay out extraordinary tales and stories and follow up with extraordinary evidence, and we'd go forward. And I must say, in, in, in seeing Terry's um, uh, piece tonight, I was struck by how much we have learned and how saddened we are to now realize that we were living in a fool's paradise. There are a handful of people somehow in NASA who guide and, and determine what we get to know on a timetable of when we get to know it. And those who are not in the club are simply not invited to participate. It is uh, assisted, Richard, by a very, very lazy American uh, press. In other words, uh, they will take a press release from NASA and treat it as the Holy Grail, and anything that would argue or contend with that is not even dealt with. I found that out, Richard, over the last several weeks, uh, after all this Heaven's Gate business. Uh, the press will decide how it wants to tell a story. And God help anybody who wants to get in the way of that with the presentation of actual factual material. They're going to tell it their way, no matter what. Well, I think you could say that that was the case up until maybe two or three years ago. And now because of the Internet, because of the very interesting competition between the so-called mainstream media and the so-called tabloid press, and how many times have we seen the New York Times laud the National Enquirer for being first on a, on a decent story? I mean, I remember when we, I was at CBS, we used the National Enquirer to wipe our shoes. It was kind of lying there as waste paper every morning. <laughs> um, things are changing in media land, and I really can see the day uh, when far-out ideas are treated as they should be, which is unproven, but not kooky, just because they're far-out. Who was it who used to say the truth is stranger than fiction? If, if anyone had told me tonight that we would be conducting this show where we're apparently at DEFCON 4 at Cheyenne Mountain. Yeah. A $9 million ground attack aircraft has somehow disappeared for 12-plus days in Colorado. Uh, you know, government officials are nervously looking over their shoulders as we approach the anniversary of Oklahoma City and of Waco. And there are strange things appearing on our satellites in the stratosphere. If anybody had told me, you know, even two years ago, that we'd be sitting on the radio discussing, you know, the validation by NASA of my theory of alien life 27 years ago, almost 20 years ago, uh, on, on the radio in front of 15 million people, I would have said that that was kind of far out. But that's the lay of the landscape as you and I are having this conversation with America tonight. Well, you're right about the Internet. It has certainly, you know, it helps and it hurts. Uh, it's a two-edged sword. But it is at least another conduit, one that we did not have before. So it does help, I think, on balance. Well, I'm hoping it's going to help because I've spent a lot of time and effort getting some stuff uh, over to Keith Rowland, our, our able web webmaster. Well, let us begin there um, so that everybody has an opportunity to begin heading in that direction. Uh, what do you have up on the web tonight? Well, every time you introduce me, the one thing that you neglect to mention is that I am head of a multidisciplinary investigation, a team of people 
who are literally laboring around the country tonight on various projects designed to move us forward, to, to bring that frontier a little closer to where ordinary folks who don't have the resources to pursue these studies can make a determination whether we're dealing with fact or fantasy. Well, that's a pretty big mouthful along with the Angstrom Science Award and the rest of it. <laughs> but Enterprise, the Enterprise mission absolutely has to, has to be given credit because there's a lot of other people who are now helping and assisting. And one of them in particular, Susan Caravan, is not here tonight. She is where I should be. Remember, I was headed for New Mexico oh, yes. tonight when, yes. when a funny thing happened, and I had to create this piece, which is going to be uploaded to the website in the next uh, you know, hour or two by Keith. Oh, okay, uh, so it's not actually it's there. It's not there yet. yet. It, it, it will be later in the morning, and I'm, why don't we wait until it's there before we kind of get right. into the nitty-gritty. All right, all right, all right. Uh, very good. Um, let's for a second talk about uh, NORAD and Cheyenne Mountain. Um, in all of my adult life, I have never seen what's going on, what went on yesterday, and to some degree is still going on right now. And I'm not clear. As a matter of fact, I called our now mutual friend, Sarah McLendon, and asked her, Sarah, what the hell's going on out at NORAD? Good for you. And she said, I'll send you a story. And as a matter of fact, I faxed it to you. It was in raw form at that point. Okay. And nobody is still sure why there was an alert, uh, why there was a lockdown, why ID was suddenly required. I mean, they, they really got into a serious condition, and they may still be in one there. And I, you know, just just little old talk show me, I'm thinking Cheyenne Mountain was supposed to withstand, correct me if I'm wrong, a direct nuclear hit of some proportion. And pretty close, yeah. Pretty close, yeah. So um, an A-10 smashing in, into it, uh, or a 500-pound bomb going off over it, or even some guy's big old truck bomb exploding in front of it. Wouldn't even notice. Wouldn't even notice. So to go into lockdown condition uh, and to explain it as a concern about domestic terrorism just doesn't get it with me. Well, there is a lot of skepticism. As we have our sources at the networks, including CNN, and you know we were talking to them yesterday and talking to them today, and they don't buy the story, but... One of the problems that the press has is they're so loath to venture an opinion or to question authority without a press release. It's like we have become a media by press release. Unless an official says something, no Sorry. correspondent will stand up and say, there's something weird going on and no one's telling us the truth. In other words, this just doesn't add up logically. It does not add up. Uh, it came up yesterday during one of the press conferences that kind of eerily remind me of the, you know, of tableau we used to have here in Long Island after TWA 800. Yes. Where there'd be, you know, officials and spokespersons and authoritative, you know, experts all standing up in front of the press saying absolutely nothing. We know the snow is deep in Colorado. We know there's no radar east of the or west of the mountains. We know it's hard to get into places, but you would think after 12, however many days now, 14, 15 days, that the most sophisticated remote sensing instrumentation in the world on the planet, for which we have spent hundreds of billions of dollars, could find an aircraft even if there's a bit of snow on top of it, particularly if it went off in a fireball 
which, uh, according to the general today at the press conference, triggered the satellite sensors in, in Earth orbit, uh, something like uh, yes. five, 600 miles up, with a marvelous IR signature. May I ask a question here? Anything. Only single level, I think. Um, if, just for the sake of conversation, you were going to steal an A-10, and you wished to divert attention for a while, um, what would stop you from dropping one of your 500-pound bombs? Would, and would that create an IR signature of the sort they saw? Uh, and then the plane, of course, would fly on to some other place. I'm not saying that has occurred. I'm just asking if that would be technically feasible. Yeah, of course it would be. The problem is that a bomb itself would not create the kind of sustained infrared signature that would indicate an aircraft crash. Okay. It would be more like a blip, uh, unless it, you know, set fire to a forest or something. What I would actually do, you know, and of course we're violently speculating here, is have a bunch of good old boys have a, a fuel dump and basically just set it on fire, time to coincide with my landing on a road, not an airfield, just a road with a tanker truck waiting conveniently. Mm -hmm. I mean, this thing is supposed to be able to get in and out of non-existent airfields, and they're looking at airfields. You know, the lack of imagination by these guys in looking for this is mind-boggling, but then, of course, you have to understand that this is a charade. The fact that we are being treated to daily press conferences, the fact that all these assets are being set in motion, the fact mm -hmm. that the SR-71 is flying and the U-2s are flying out of San Francisco, mm -hmm. Mountain View, which is south of San Francisco, uh, is some indication of the seriousness, probably up through the Pentagon and maybe even beyond, with which this little incident is being treated. And I just have the feeling that what we're seeing at the press conferences out there is really a diversion for a much more concentrated effort. And, in fact, maybe the, the uh, NORAD alert was designed to get radar linked around the world to see if there was any unusual movement of anything that should not be moving from point A to point B. Boy, I wonder what they're worried about. Richard, hold on. We're at the bottom of the hour, and we'll be right back to you. My guest is Richard C. Hoagland. I know you've been waiting for this one. It should be a fascinating night, so buckle in and get ready. I'm Art Bell, and this is CBC. Seven two seven one two nine five. That's seven zero two seven two seven one two nine five. First time callers can reach Art Bell at seven zero two seven two seven one two 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 seven zero two seven two seven one two two two. Now here again, Art Bell. Well, good morning, everybody. I've got Richard C. Hoagland on the line. He'll be back in a moment. It's going to be a fascinating, absolutely fascinating night. Did you know? Little paw. Uh, thanks to Ken at uh, K A R N Radio in Little Rock, Arkansas, the very latest on Cheyenne Mountain. Interesting. Let me read this to you. Tighter security remains in force at a key air defense site today. Commanders at the North American Aerospace Defense Command say the threat targeted the agency Cheyenne Mountain Complex in Colorado. But since the tougher security took effect, 
officials have begun to backpedal a bit. They now say the information about the threat came third-hand, and one commander says it appears the source of the information wasn't that credible. Still, though, the extra security measures remain in effect for now. It's the Associated Press. Richard, um, you know, I don't buy any of this. Well, given what we are going to talk about as the evening progresses, particularly these STS-80 footage, which uh, we've now gotten our hands on, and the fact that something pretty interesting showed up on a couple of satellite images, which you posted on your website yesterday, and I had Keith put on ours tonight. Okay. I would think that, you know, something is up. And normally when something interesting is going on, they would like to keep us in the dark for as long as possible, particularly if it's serious. And I just have this feeling that uh, something is up. Uh, there are reports of increased military activity uh, at just about every base that I have an opportunity to talk to somebody near. Mm. Uh, planes, a lot more planes taking off, that sort of thing. But, I mean, uh, they're trying to have it both ways here in the story. They're saying uh, the tighter security remains in place, but, ah, you know, it was a third-hand kind of uh, a warning, and uh, it wasn't credible, and yet they're keeping the thing locked down. Uh, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Well, if you didn't want someone... They, see, they have tours. You can actually get on a bus and go to the gate right, and make an appointment and go and see, you know, what we used to have as the Global Command Center for World War III. Well, it, it still is, isn't and, it? And there are huge screens and computer consoles and, you know, guys in blue and women in blue and all that. And if if they don't want someone to see what's on those screens, and what steps are being taken to respond to whatever is on the screens. Obviously, you want to keep the tourists out, but you can't just say, okay, you can't come in. You have to give a plausible reason why you can't come in. They haven't and done that yet. Terrorism has become the plausible reason. When in doubt, talk about terrorism mm. and no one will ask any questions. Mm. Um, I can imagine that under normal circumstances, for example, at the White House, say. All right? Uh, or even an, a federal government building. But Cheyenne Mountain, uh, to remain locked down like this, um, I don't know. I just, I'm having a really hard time with this. <laughs> uh, I just can't imagine a terrorist making a big dent in Cheyenne Mountain. No, and maybe someone in your vast audience, <clears throat> uh, we know it's a vast audience, all right? All right. I have the numbers. <laughs> we'll call in who is actually connected to whatever's going on and without revealing any national secrets might give us some further information. Well, I sure would like it. Uh, if you had to make a guess, first of all, tell us what they do there. Uh, they are concerned with what? Matters in space, strategic launches, that kind of thing? All of that. All of if, that. Uh, it used to be the Soviet Union. It used to be, you know, all-out nuclear war. <clears throat> Mad, mutual assured destruction, a response to a Soviet first strike, et cetera, et cetera. Now that we are friends with the Russians, and now that uh, we are not mutually targeting, so we are told, missiles on each other's territory. Do you believe that, by the way? Uh, actually, yes, because my strong suspicion is that an awful lot of the Cold War was more hype than real to begin with having to do with much more interesting agendas. And, again, 
the deeper you get into this morass of who's telling you the truth and when and how much, the more you become very distrustful of anything you are told. Anything. I didn't used to be that way. You know, I am now. That's with both of us. I used to be very trustful, actually. When the FBI, for example, would come to the podium when I was young and say <laughs> something, it was like gold. I mean, you, it was just true. I remember a film they showed us at school with Jimmy Stewart, the FBI at work or something, and they actually took us out of class to go down and sit in the auditorium and watch this film, and I thought it was the most amazing thing. You know, the FBI is your friend because it gets you out of class to go see what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, what NORAD does now is it monitors the world for um, theater alerts, for the nth country problem. Let's say Saddam Hussein got his hands on a rocket, a long-range rocket. Mm -hmm. He was with Gerald Bull, who actually I I, uh, knew at one time, um, on the verge of having a capability using a very ancient technology called a gun. Right? Oh, that was Uh, that gigantic... That gigantic cannon. Yep. If he oriented that gun in a certain azimuth in the desert against a hill he would have been able to lob on a ballistic trajectory a primitive nuclear device from Iraq to New York, where I just happen to be sitting tonight. So those kinds of threats, you know, the ants country problem, are basically what NORAD is looking at now. Plus there is the, what they used to call the mad general problem. You know, when you have an empire collapse the way the former Soviet Union has, and you have a lot of hungry, desperate people who have not been paid in many, many years, some mm-hmm. some of them, including the military. There is an unavoidable suspicion that some of those people on the fringe might want to pawn a nuclear weapon or two to make some rubles, you know, just to buy bread. To sure, eat. sure. You know, people have this annoying habit they need to eat. So the problem then, of course, is that whoever has money and for many years it was rumored that Gaddafi was you know offering to anyone fabulous amounts of money for someone who could provide him with a workable nuclear device um you would have a real problem if a delivery system also should should materialize in, in someone's hands so NORAD spends a lot of time looking at that it also uh spends time looking at space it is looked literally at impacts around the world. We now know that there are lots of little, you know, miniature comets, little bits of flotsam and jetsam coming out of space and impacting, some of them with the energy equivalent of several kilotons of explosives, several thousand tons of TNT high in the stratosphere, mostly over the oceans because that's where, you know, most of the uh, surface area of the Earth happens to reside. Mm-hmm. Um there is concern, of course, that one might confuse in a moment of crisis some of these natural impacts, which are the equivalent of, as I said, high-energy explosions with theater-scale nuclear weapons. So NORAD is, is monitoring. And during the recent spate of asteroid uh, scenarios, remember the week or two weeks we were inundated? Oh, yes. With every possible scenario for the destruction of civilization by comet or asteroid strike I do. all simultaneously? Indeed. That, by the way, might bear some discussion later on. Anyway, in that, it came out that, uh, yeah, the networks, the uh, not the networks, you know, commercial media, but the 
military surveillance reconnaissance networks have been in picking up for years impact that generated explosions in the atmosphere from objects falling out of space at, you know, several miles per second. Mm -hmm. We get hit by a lot of little things. Fortunately, it is little. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble. Anyway, so they look at all that. And then there's the satellite launches from, you know, China and from the former Soviet Union and from Japan and from ESA, which is the European Space Agency. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of other stuff that we're not supposed to be aware of. And then, of course, now I'm going to get labeled a kook again by our friends up north. There's the real activity in space, namely folks who are here flitting around upstairs who are not answerable to the president and whoever knows what, and whose signatures and images you can see on this stunning, literally stunning piece of videotape that we received from sources a few days ago and have been sharing with other members, research members of the Enterprise mission, some of whom are busily doing analyses tonight, hint, hint, so that by the time I do your show next time, uh, I can provide you with an annotated version of the tape and analyses by members of the aerospace community whose credentials are long and trusted and venerable and unimpeachable. And so when they say these are spaceships flitting around and they're not ours and they don't know whose they are, uh, someone and someone's highly placed will have reason to believe them. Well, all right. So all of that is backdrop for the fact that tonight we're sitting here not knowing quite why our central, you know, geopolitical monitoring uh, system headquartered in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado uh, is on alert. Okay. Uh, now, it, it, it's got to be speculation because that's all we can do. But if we assume that it's not the Russians up to no good, uh, and it's not some third world country ready to launch something nasty at us, and we don't buy the explanation of domestic terrorism, then what else can you imagine would cause such a, a hubbub? Well, the night of March 10th through March 13th, which was the beginning of a remarkable set of events uh, that we described when I was on your show on the 19th. Yes. Including Bill Clinton having problems with his knees, including the the, the old Navy business, which we'll get to. Huh. Um, you keep laughing about that. I do because I fielded uh, so many of the responses uh, that came in after that. Richard, yeah, so did we. Hundreds and hundreds yep. of responses. Yep. And they range, by the way, from uh, split down the middle, about 50-50, I would say. People who said, yes, you know, I called that number, and uh, I got a back door by hitting the asterisk or pound sign or whatever, and I got a message uh, to people who went into the store and were apparent, apparently taken seriously. And then I would say there was another half uh, who, when they approached the, you know, the, the, the store owner, um, got a response like, oh, no, here comes another one <laughs> or something to that effect. And um, uh, so it was a great mixed response, but I was shocked because, frankly, you couldn't see me. When you came out with this old Navy store business, um, I, I was sitting here shaking my head going, oh, Richard, what are we doing? Uh, what are we doing? And yet it came back 
mixed. And so there I was shaking my head at the responses going, what the hell? What is going on? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the way you bury a signal is to mix it in with noise. A signal is only a signal if you recognize it is a signal. If you're communicating in code, that's why codes exist, Art. During World War II, in an effort to foil the Japanese, the U.S. government, the Army, hired Navajo code talkers. Right. And because Navajo is not exactly a household language in Japan, our codes, unlike the Japanese code, and unlike the Enigma code of the Germans, remained unbroken throughout the war. By the way, Richard, we are now on KTNN. It's a radio station in Window Rock, Arizona, uh, 50,000 watts on 660, right uh, uh, right, uh, it's right in the middle of uh, the Navajo uh, uh, capital. And just east of the Barringer Crater. Uh, so you're talking to a lot of Navajo folk right now when you say that. Okay. Well, a code is only valuable if the people who are not privy to it don't get it and those who are privy to it can understand it and and use it sure so i was not surprised that the the faxes and the, the phone calls and other messages coming in were mixed because i expected that if you're going to bury a secret organization designed to do something interesting under the cover of a regular normal everyday clothing outlet <laughs> there would be some stores maybe even most stores that would be doing exactly that. They'd be selling clothes. But there'd be some that would be doing that plus something else. And what I found really remarkably intriguing was that most of the reports I got back were that the people, the stores approached by folks who let us know, did not know anything about the sale. There were no shirts marked down from 1950, 19.5, to 1650, uh -huh. right? Yes. First thing, no sale. Of Scott's plaid shirts, all right? Plaid, plaid shirts. Yes. Number two, um, they the store personnel were outfitted with the most interesting high-tech communications gear. True. They were wearing headsets. Yep. Now, what's interesting is that one report that came in a few uh, hours ago, literally, of someone who went back a couple of times, said that the personnel in this one store were all female. There was no one in the store, and yet they were all communicating with each other over these headsets. <laughs> I mean, this is pretty weird. Now, we had one of our, um, let's see, how should I say this, fraternity. How's that? We'll, we'll coin our own fraternity here. That'll work. Who uh, surveyed one of the major outlets in the Northeast, Old Navy store outlets, and reported that in front of this particular outlet, which was in a major U.S. city, on a major thoroughfare mm -hmm. at 10 o'clock at night, a set of communications trucks lowering something like a mile of one-inch fiber optic cable were deployed precisely in front of the old Navy store. Huh. Now, you know, American cities have a lot of stuff under them. If you were to excavate in 10,000 years, you know, bring an archaeologist from Alpha Centauri and go through American cities, you'd find that they are about as deep as they are high, particularly cities like Boston, New York, and Baltimore, and Philadelphia, and whatever. 
there's a lot of stuff under the city. Sure. Right? Sure. Uh, water mains and electrical supply lines and subways and whatever. Normally, the conduits for cabling, when you're outfitting, you know, a section of the city with new cabling, mm-hmm. you go down 10, 20, maybe 30 feet, and then you go horizontally. And you have to have a facility, a device to pull the cable along horizontally uh, because it's very heavy and the friction will take over and you can't just lower the cable into a hole, all right? You've got to have a device that moves it laterally under the streets. All right. In this case, this observer, who is pretty conversant with these technologies, observed that the cable on huge drums was being positioned on a crane so it would fall vertically down through the hole in the street. Huh. And that meant that it was a free fall, not 20, 30, 40 feet, but the length of each of these huge drums, I mean, as big as a uh, two-story building. Sounds like Mel's Hole. Uh, exactly. It sounded like a very deep lowering of high-density, high-bandwidth, modern, ultra-modern, resistant communications Ooh, technology. That's weird. Right in front of an old Navy store. Now, he also, this individual, was able to secure video uh, using some techniques, uh, image enhancement techniques, of the upper floors of this store. The entire block was this store, including several floors above the uh, lighted outlet where the clothes are being sold. Mm-hmm. And behind the shades, behind the slatted shades of the upper floors can be discerned on this enhanced video some very peculiar communications antennae, which are recognizable because you can't cheat the laws of physics. You know, um, coax and... and uh, Sure. Waveguides and things like that are kind of recognizable. Sure. sure. So what in the world is an old Navy store being, being doing, be, being used as a headquarters for some kind of very ultra-modern communications gear, which requires, among other things, the vertical emplacement of about a mile of high uh, bandwidth fiber optic cable vertically down a hole in front of the store? Well... I don't have that answer, Richard, nor do I actually know what the old Navy stores, according to you, were even up to. And, now, now and, the third piece of data, before we get off the subject. Oh, I don't the, intend to get off it at all. I, I want to know from you what it's all about. And well, I so, don't know what it's all about. What I'm trying to do is to gather information. One of the third pieces of information that I want to communicate. Well, you're going to have to hold that till the top of the hour here. Can okay. you do that? All right, and then we'll try and find out what this is all about, the old Navy stores. That was one of the strangest events on this program in all of its history. (laughs) The old Navy stores. Well, I could tell you stories about people who went in. Absolutely incredible. My guest is Richard C. Hoagland. It's going to be a very, very interesting evening. So strap in, stay put, and it'll just keep coming. You know it will with Richard. This is CBC. Do you suffer from revolving debts? Call Art Bell toll-free. West of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. 
800-825-5033. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. That's what it is. Good morning, everybody. I'm Art Bell. My guest is Richard C. Hoagland. And uh, we are going to talk of many things this evening. The uh, lockdown at NORAD, Europa, which Richard has finally been given proper credit for, and many, many more things. So as I said uh, prior to the hour, buckle down. Lots of interesting stuff and a couple of big announcements coming up next. First, though, the Beijing Free Play Radio. And start your collection of After Dark newsletters. Call toll-free 1-800-917-4278. Call right now. All right, this is something that I've done um, about four times a year, and I'm going to begin doing it again now to keep you informed on how the program, this program, is going. I spoke earlier in the day with Mike Elder, who is the operations uh, manager of WLS Radio in Chicago, which, by the way, originally stood for World's Largest Store. Did you know that? The mighty WLS 890 in Chicago. And uh, Mike was overjoyed, as was I, when I heard that our numbers, survey numbers, in Chicago, uh, in one book, in this last book, have, uh, for all categories of 12 years old plus, have doubled. <laughs> we have actually doubled the survey numbers in Chicago. So I want to thank everybody in Chicago and in the surrounding areas. Actually, when you're talking about WLS, you're talking about 38 states or something, so they're heard all over the place. But in Metro Chicago, our numbers doubled in one survey. Uh, the larger markets, as the surveys come out, are uh, reported first. And so now I want to turn my attention um, uh, to Andy Ludlam, at KABC, uh, who I communicated with earlier in the day, and the numbers for Los Angeles are in, and they are absolutely staggering. Uh, in my time period, uh, from midnight to four in Los Angeles, uh, we have pulled a 13.9 share. Now, in a city the size of Los Angeles, that is absolutely beyond belief. And 13.9 as a share for all categories of 12 plus rates among the highest ratings ever achieved by any radio station in Los Angeles. So I have a lot of people to thank. And uh, this morning they would obviously be the people of uh, Chicago, uh, the people of Los Angeles who obviously um, are listening in gigantic numbers. As a matter of fact, in Los Angeles, this 13.9 uh, uh, rating is over uh, roughly, uh, no, it's over twice uh, the share of the next closest competitor. In other words, we have twice the listeners of the next closest competitor. And as you know, there are many, many, many radio stations in Los Angeles. So it is a great honor and uh, and I want to thank everybody there. And I am going to, uh, uh, Mike, uh, rather Andy uh, Ludlam suggested that I would frame the survey. And that's probably exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it in a nice frame somewhere. It's one of the best ever received. So having said that, in a moment, uh, no, not a moment, right now, let's go back to Manhattan and Richard C. Hoagland. Richard? 
You can take a moment if you want. <laughs> I'm that's, pretty, that's an excellent rating. That's yeah, really amazing. You. Yeah, I'm pretty proud. I was looking down here. KCBS is way down on the list. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't My old wanna, alma mater out there. You know, I, don't, I, I, I don't want to talk about uh, what's happening to others so much, although there is. Well, you know what it is, Art. It's, it's, this is going to sound weird. It's not you. It's the guest you have on. Yeah. It's the subject matter you deal with. It's the fact that you allow people, sometimes a little too much, to come to their own conclusion. I mean, you mix madly your metaphors, and some nights you will have total dingbats on. You're right. And the next night you'll have someone who is deadly serious, and will you never tell your audience, even with a wink, which is which. It's intentional. You really let them make their own decision, and that's what time was crucifying you for, but that's also why the numbers are what they are, because you, unlike certain other radio talk show hosts that I have dealt with over the years, you understand where your audience is going, and you're not scrambling to get out front of them. You, in fact, are leading this audience by providing the kind of content people want to think about. Well, I treat them as adults, Richard. I presume that my audience can sit there, and I actually try to help my guests tell their story, and the audience can make up their own mind with regard to the credibility of what's being said. And it's not exactly um, rocket science. It's very simple. And you're right. I will go from the absolute ridiculous of um, uh, Mel's Hole or Chevrolet's falling down into the middle of uh, <laughs> Long Beach to something very serious, and I will do that. One night after another, after another, after another, I'll vary it around while the rest of talk radio seems absolutely convinced the only formula to success is to march straight behind Rush Limbaugh and talk about politics for hours on end. I simply decided there's more to life than that, and that it's, it's not complicated. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, it's showing up, obviously, in the numbers, yeah. and that's yeah. why you have the numbers. Yeah. Which allows us, you know, when we come on, to basically lay out where we are in this investigation. I want to get back to this uh, Old Navy thing. Because I know every time I mention it, you smile. I do. In fact, I even sometimes chuckle just because of the reactions. The Old Navy stores, could you give us just a little hint, Richard, what you suspected about the Old Navy stores okay. that, that led you to do what you did? Okay. All right. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's very simple. We started out looking at data, all right, data indicating that this government was not telling us the total truth. These are the extraterrestrial um, artifacts, habitation, personages, entities, beings, members of the dysfunctional family, whatever you want to call them, all right? And for many years, for over a decade and a half now, we've been pursuing what I hope is a reasonable scientific study involving a lot of other people in looking at artifacts, first on Mars and on the moon, and, you know, recently some work we did even before I could say that I was occupied with this full time, that is the Europa, you know, insights, have now borne rather interesting and remarkable fruit. So yes. we're expanding our search through the solar system, and about 20 years ago we were ahead of the pack, and probably, <laughs> I can say with some justification, we may be 20 years ahead of them still, which is very depressing because we don't have 20 years for everybody to catch up. There's a lot of practical things that this knowledge and this investigation should be turned to. Well, as part of this investigation, part of discovering that NASA has found evidence of structures on 
other planets. And because of the Brookings report, because of this official study that they themselves commissioned back uh, uh, 19, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry, 37 years ago, that they haven't gotten around to, to leveling with the American people and telling us the truth, we began to strongly suspect that in addition to the science, we had to open a political wing to the investigation. Mm-hmm. We had to deal with this as if, in fact, somebody was deliberately not telling us the truth. And so we've had our feelers out, and we've had sources, and we have cultivated, you know, inside people, and we've had a lot of people now at NASA who are as uh, uh, basically affronted by this contradiction to the charter as as we are, provide us with data and leads and sources. We've had people in the aerospace community who have labored, you know, at no cost to do analyses to to try to corroborate what we have found. We've had independent researchers some of whom I'm going to be mentioning by name and their their work in the next few weeks, both on our website at Enterprise Mission as well as on your show if you uh, would like to hear about it, who have duplicated and verified and extended our work in terms of the artifact. And as we have pursued the science, it has become more and more apparent that there is a parallel hidden political agenda by some to keep the rest of us in the dark regarding these related subjects. And so I became very interested in who's behind the plot, who's behind the conspiracy. Oh, my God, I've said it, the, the, the C word, the uh-huh, dreaded uh-huh, C word. Uh-huh. You know, why do we have the RICO statute? Because the federal government, in its infinite wisdom, foresaw several years ago that you needed a racketeering statute to basically confront a conspiracy where a whole bunch of people get together and don't tell the outside crowd what's going on and do things that are not good for the society. Well, we have found that there is a group of people who seem to be transgovernmental, transagency, transnational. They seem to owe allegiance to no one nation, but an ideology, a philosophy, which for want of a better term can be termed uh, a secret society. Secret cabal. Um, Cabal makes it, it almost sounds too formal, all right? This is, and and people tend to put labels on things, and it's so easy to haul up your latest uh, hate group and say, okay, they're responsible. In fact, it's not that simple. There's an awful lot of gamesmanship. There's an awful lot of deception. There's an awful lot of, you know, leading with your left when you're doing something over on the right. But somebody, for whatever reason, has made a concerted effort to keep us from knowing that the human race has a much more extraordinary history than most of the textbooks talk about. And as the space program developed, they made darn sure that the data that came back to Earth first was filtered through key eyes and hands, and what the American people and the political people and the so-called people in responsible positions at NASA and others got was sanitized information because it's now very obvious that 99.9% of the space agency doesn't know what's out there. All right. Well, then, Richard, are you saying that this um, group, whoever they are, whatever they are, Mm -hmm. need a means to communicate and coordinate? And was it then your suspicion that uh, this group of clothing stores somehow 
um, was a front for or involved in this this coordination and communication. Is that, what it, is that what it comes down Some to? Of, that's what it comes down to. I, I use the, the comparison with the old man from Uncle TV series where you would enter the little dry cleaning store yep. and you'd pull the third coat hanger from the left and you'd go down in the secret elevator and there you were with, with sure. Control and Mr. whatever his name was, I forget, uh, Paulie and Solo's boss, all right? It is turning out from reports we got in from all over the country and reports you got that we tripped over and we uncovered the tip of an iceberg here that is frankly much richer than I would have imagined. Because it turned out there were honest old Navy stores that didn't have a darn idea what the heck anybody was talking about. Right. And then there were the other kind. Who probably would have liked to have strangled Richard Hoagland if they could have found him. Well, but it's my intention to let them know we know. Because what's happening now tonight with NORAD on alert, with aircraft disappearing, with yes. with bizarre goings-on overhead, with shuttle video that was deliberately leaked to us from Houston by somebody, again, honest folks who want us to know that we are not being told what's going on literally over our head, no, who are preoccupying our time with tragic diversions like Heaven's Gate. And as I'm speaking, a, you know, one of the spokespersons is on uh, uh, MSNBC, even as I'm talking to you now. You know, an absolutely tragic monopolization of the attention of the middle of the curve, the middle of the American electorate, who are getting their introduction to extraterrestrial phenomenon through the most sickening and distorted prism one can imagine. That, in fact, I believe, is part of a concerted effort to disinform while important and relevant developments are going on behind the scenes that we are not hearing about because we're much more preoccupied with how Newt Gingrich is going to pay back $300,000. Yeah, really, who cares? We've got a loan from Bob Dole. Uh, you know, on the Heaven's Gate business, my complaint that I've been voicing very loudly for a long time was if you read their suicide note, which the media has not bothered to show, they won't show it back, uh, at least the first half of it, the very first sentence says uh, whether or not uh, Comet Hale-Bopp has a companion is irrelevant. And further down, it says the uh, marker for what we're going to do or something, I'm paraphrasing now, uh, is the comet itself. Well, for some reason, the media decided that it was not going to listen to that, Richard, and they wanted to talk about UFOs because that was the hook to the story. Uh, they wanted the UFO angle, and so God help anybody who would get in their way with actual evidence to the contrary. <laughs> and they grabbed that UFO thing, and they ran with it. And I suspect that's what you're talking about. Well, you can look at this two ways. You can say that the, the mainstream media all right, are innately quite conservative. Their job, as some friends of mine on television used to say, is not to investigate it is to coronate. You know, television, most television exists not to break new ground, but to basically celebrate familiar ground. Right. Um, and the whole UFO phenomenology, extraterrestrial life, uh, if it doesn't come from NASA, is definitely beyond the edge of the paper 
for most editors and reporters and the like. Having said that, you know, one can look at the coverage of the Heaven's Gate tragedy in one of two ways. A lot of basically preoccupied reporters and editors who see this for what they think it is, who ask no questions, and who basically take the handouts of the officials and the authorities who are on the case, and who have basically promulgated the standard perception, which is that you had a well-meaning but totally deluded group of individuals who one afternoon packed their bags, got all dressed up, and committed suicide because they thought they were going to be beamed aboard a uh, spacecraft hiding behind a bomb. That's the standard part of the line. But behind that inertia of normal uh, news conservatism, there is the possibility that there have been some reporters, some editors, some media outlets that have been carefully egging that story forward, have been putting that spin on it for political purposes. Because for most people who do not spend the amount of time that your audience spends thinking about unusual and uh, and uh, definitely different subjects, mm-hmm. their first reawakening and reacquaintance with the UFO phenomenon, the extraterrestrial phenomenology, was through a group of people who had tragically committed a uh, an extraordinary act and who had caused great pain and suffering to family and loved ones and friends and 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 all of that. And it has generally turned off a lot of people who may have been beginning to see things around them, bits and pieces on shows like uh, Sightings and Strange Universe and other outlets that raise questions that demand honest, thoughtful answers. And what happens? The Heaven's Gate tragedy suddenly takes that curiosity and turns it off. I mean, the idea that people would commit suicide willingly over a several-day period and live among their colleagues and friends and family while they are literally decomposing before their eyes Mm -hmm. is so horrifying. If one were to write a script for the calculated horror of confrontation with anything hinting of the abnormal or the different or the strange or the questions that need to be raised, one cannot imagine a more difficult or appropriate scenario to turn curiosity off at the source. And maybe, just maybe, that's what was intended by this tragedy. Well, The reason I'm saying that is because I have grave suspicions that these people are did not commit suicide. Oh, my God. All right. Well, that's a, yet another twist. Hold on. We'll come back and pick up on that point. Did not commit suicide. Well, and yet another can of worms is opened in the early morning. Good morning, everybody. I'm Art Bell, and from the high desert, this is CBZ.
taking calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again... Art Bell. Good morning, everybody. My guest is Richard C. Hoagland, and we are at a critical moment, which which he interjected just before the break. We'll get back to it in a moment. The Heaven Gate, Su- Heaven's Gate suicides, not suicides? Hmm. We'll be right back on that one, believe me. Commodities, 6-9. Tell them Art Bell told you to call. That's 1-800-406-0469. All right, here we go. Back to Richard Hoagland in Manhattan. Richard, um, an immediate pickup from where we left off. You said that the Heaven's Gate suicides may not have been suicides. Uh, on, on, uh-oh, we've lost Richard Hoagland. Now, how did that happen? That was, I was assured that was impossible, that we could lose Richard Hoagland, but uh, we have done that, so I'm going to have to get back in touch with him. <laughs> Oh, my. Uh, so it goes. So I'm going to take uh, another quick break of break on necessity, we'll call it here, and uh, get Richard back on the telephone again. So stay right where you are, are you to lose with those symptoms. So call 1-800-249-6060. Again, 1-800-249-6060. Well, every time you say something a little sensitive, we get cut off. <laughs> Um, hi, Richard. All right, now look, uh, right back to it. We have to go right back to it. You said the suicides may not have been suicide. What do you mean? Well, I mean, let me start with the obvious. Has anybody asked the question? Normally, when you find 39 dead people, the first question that the police are supposed to ask is, did these people voluntarily walk off the plank right. or did they have assistance? Of course. And if they did, you know, how deeply do you probe to find out if, in fact, they were murdered so it would look like suicide? Now, the problem with the investigation, as I've been watching it from this coast, is that because these people were kooks, because they believed something that was so outrageous compared to the norms of San Diego or Rancho Santa Fe, sure, because it was so out of bounds, immediately the normal procedure to be curious and skeptical and ask hard questions, be it detectives or whatever, seemed to go by the board. And we heard something from the coroner who seemed, frankly, more excited to be on television than he seemed to be interested in solving a problem. And nowhere did we hear one leading question about how we know for certain these people actually committed suicide despite the blatant and repeated contradictions to what we thought we saw on television. And I could go through, I mean, I could spend the entire program going through the contradictions. That's what I do for a living these days, is look at contradiction between what we are told and what the facts really are. Well, touch on a few. I'm extremely disturbed that no one is asking any questions. For example, um, everyone had a bag packed. And if you look at the literature on the website, if you delved into these people through Brad Steiger's book, for instance, you have right. read on the show? Uh, I did. When, when uh, you know, Doe was Bo and T was Peep and right. all that. Right, right. 
you know these people had a consistent philosophical position and some considered perspective in exactly how they were going to transcend their fellow human uh, relationships. And it had to do with a physical, I repeat, a physical transition, a la a spacecraft. All right? And nothing in their literature, nothing in the 20 years that I've been able to find, nothing in the dialogues or reportage or personal statements and recollections of the various former members, like Dick Jocelyn, who was on uh, Larry King a couple of times. Right. Uh, contradict that. Everyone to a person who was a former member has expressed surprise that these people committed suicide. And no one has picked up on it. No one in authority has said, hey, wait a minute. Maybe there's a problem here. You know, because they're kooks, because we've written them off as less, not more than human, less than human, because they have a different belief system. And, you know, I'm, I'm working from the advantage of having a source who called me early on as this thing was unfolded, mm-hmm. un- unfolding, and who frankly told me that they had been approached 20-some years ago by Doe, who was calling himself Bo at that time, Applegate. And the reason this individual did not get involved is because these two people, Bo and Pete, were government agents. Really? Now, if I can get that information, now, I mean, obviously, people call me because we're doing what we're doing. How much right? assurance uh, do you give to that information? Um, because this is someone that I know extremely well and have worked with on a source basis for a long time, and they have been found to be extraordinarily reliable in areas that are pretty much at the edge of the paper, I give it a great deal of credence, Art. But what disturbs me is that officials are not thinking the obvious. It is so easy to look at that video and see these excited people who had dressed up, who had made their uniforms, who had made little hyperdimensional tetrahedral patches. You notice them? The equilateral triangle? Yes. The metaphor, heaven's gate? The purple shrouds? You know, well, the purple shrouds are, you know, I'm not, I'm talking about when these people were alive and sitting there on television in that common room, all right? Yes. And they're all discussing this transition. Now, most people looking at that video, because these are kooks, of course, think that that's a euphemism for we're all going to go and commit suicide. Not understanding that these people really did believe they were going to make a transition. They were leaving this planet. Now, if I had shown any of these people the video that I'm going to provide to you from shuttle mission number 80 last December, which we will actually go in a studio and put out as a video so that anybody with a VCR can see this, all right, courtesy of your friendly local neighborhood space agency. We're going to put it on the website with proper annotations and, you know, arrows and circles and and the appropriate analysis. What does it show? If anybody had shown this video to these people, they would have had zero doubt, Art, as you will when you see it, that if they were told that a spaceship was going to land in the backyard by the pool at 9.30 in the morning, it would be there. No question. Because... 
this video is that good. What is in the video? Objects photographed from the shuttle that are pursuing flight dynamics in Earth orbit that are absolutely violating every law Newton ever wrote. What about the NASA explanation of ice crystals and all that stuff? If you show me how an ice crystal can suddenly decide to stop in mid-flight, reverse direction, and move off in another direction with no obvious thruster firings and no outside forces perturbing it, among other things, all right, and go back and forth in and out of the air glow layer at the horizon a couple of times and move off at, you know, station keep with the shuttle, then move off at five miles per second and not get dimmer, all right, uh, I will entertain that. That, that explanation. In fact, if I had shown this video that we have, that we're having analyzed exhaustively, uh, to any of the Heaven's Gate group, there would have been no doubt in their minds they were looking at spacecraft, and if I told them one was going to land at 9.30 in the morning, they'd be there, dressed with their bags packed. Now, let me just put out a possible scenario. And again, I'm not attached to any of this. I'm simply being, I can use this term, a devil's advocate here, okay? Well, they will attach you. So be careful well, what them. you say. I don't care. The yeah. truth is stronger I, I, than I do understand. I understand right? what you're saying, so go right ahead. All their bags were packed. Okay. They were getting ready for a journey. Why do you pack your bag if you're going to be leaving your vehicle? Why would you possibly need anything of this earthly plane if you were going to a better place with a technology which certainly could do a lot more than, you know, current 20th century terrestrial technology can do, up to and including clothing. Well, right? that is a reasonable question. However, when normal people die and they're buried, they're generally put in their finest suits and all the rest of it, sometimes buried with the materialistic articles that they, for some reason or another, want to be buried with. Uh, so there could be that. Well... There could be, and that's what's interesting. There's such ambiguity because if, in fact, they were being told that they were going to be picked up and they had a celebratory meal together, yes. as apparently they did, it is trivial if someone wanted to set this group up to make a blatant, political, manipulative, horrifying spectacle to basically slip a Mickey in their food. And then they could be killed in stages, all right? All it would take would be a couple of handlers. No one bothered them. They were there in that house. You know, no one came to call. They had no visitors. And, you know, faxes, not faxes, but videos were sent out to this last surviving member who just happened to decide to leave a month before. So he'd be the one in the group to go back. You know that he went in with a video camera? and put cologne on his shirt to photograph his friends decomposing? No, I did, on, I did not know that. I, that I, on, I that do know, Larry? Richard, I do know that the leader uh, apparently has been arrested on some non-related uh, charges. No, 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 not the leader. No, not, not the leader. I'm sorry, not the leader, but the surviving uh, member. No, no, it's not him. It's not, who no, is it, it? It is his employer. His employer? Yeah, his employer in the video company in Beverly Hills. I see. It is not the uh, former member of the cult. He is involved in a legal controversy over who owns the website. Uh, Heaven's Gate? Company. Uh, Heaven's, not Heaven's Gate, the other one. Higher Source. Higher Source, okay. Which was the web development company side of the um, 
of the of the operation. In fact, this group, which was very nomadic and in their 20 years, you know, begged for food and begged for clothes and whatever, suddenly became extremely well financed at the end. And when you actually looked at their balance sheet, you know, at the website design, well, they had sold a. Uh... Uh, something they had constructed in Texas or somewhere, New Mexico. I it forget. was New Mexico. New Mexico. All right. Well, they suddenly moved to San Diego, to one of the wealthiest communities yes. on earth. Right. All right. Right. Where their um, event, their passing, their whatever, would cause the greatest impact. I mean, if this group of people had done what everyone thinks they did in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico, it would have been a... 30-second read on, uh, you know, on uh, Dan Rather. Think so? There would never have been the kind of press. But the fact that it took place in a plush, posh suburb of San Diego. Did you know, Richard, that in America, 30,800 people in the last year measured committed suicide? Mm-hmm. Uh, to to, to have this in perspective, 30,800 committed suicide. It would have been a 30-second blip. The fact that it was done in the middle of one of the wealthiest communities among neighbors who were shocked and horrified and uh, where those things are not supposed to happen. Sure. And again, if one is being suspicious, one would say that that was by design, someone's design. In fact, when this individual called me and said that the reason that they did not participate 20 years ago in this program is because they, they had absolute proof that these two individuals were government agents. I got very interested because, you see, you don't have to believe they were government agents to believe that they had an agenda. A lot of people think that the government is doing things that I am rapidly coming to believe are not done by government at all. That brings us back to secret societies, organizations that have the technology, the funding, the global resources, the long-term agenda to be as efficient as government is thought to be but in fact is never, all right, that efficient, and yet um, really has no interface with the normal day-to-day occurrences of government as you and I understand the term. I just think there are lots of questions here that have never been, never even been addressed, let alone answered. For instance, did the coroner look for needle tracks? It would be so simple to inject these people after they were comatose with a deadly dose of what was found in the toxicology reports in their in their blood. Mm-hmm. And because they're kooks, because they're less than human, no one's asking questions. We don't really want to know. We just want to get rid of them out of sight, out of mind, unless we're, you know, the media that are using them to hype ratings and to draw out this agony and these terrible family stories of, of people who can't understand why their loved ones did something so strange and so baffling and so unreal. This is just another example of how we don't get answers from our media. We simply get extended hype and uh, the prevarication of a particular spin. And in this case, I think we should be asking much harder questions because the political effect of what transpired was to turn off an awful lot of people just as you had really provocative events occurring in the real world of extraterrestrial phenomena, such as the events over Phoenix, which occurred just a few nights earlier. Good question. Um, so 
You suspect it was murder. I suspect it was a setup. Well, and one of the reasons I suspect it was a setup is because when I first heard about it, uh, because of the pattern we've discerned in some of our work vis-a-vis the secret societies, yes, um, I looked at the latitudes. I, I, I tend to do that these days. I know. And I said, oh, my gosh, because it looked as if the, the, the deaths occurred at 33 degrees. Well, some colleagues have provided me now with uh, uh, site survey maps from the city of San Diego of Rancho Santa Fe. And Art, that house that they rented, yeah. it's precisely at 33 degrees north of latitude. Which means what? Well, 33 degrees is a key number in secret society traditions. You know, in the Masonic tradition, there's 30, 30, 30 degrees. Right. That's, that's, true. that's true. I am not indicting Masons. I want to be absolutely clear. And by the way, nor are you indicting Old Navy stories. No, of course not. I, w- I, 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 I do want to clear that up because uh, it makes it sound as though the Old Navy stores are leading some giant conspiracy. And we don't know that to be the fact at all. Well, of course we? not. Yeah. What I'm saying is there is a group, an institution which is trans-institutional, meaning that it has members in interesting places, both government and non-government, corporate and non-corporate, private, whatever. And in concert, these individuals are pursuing an agenda that is very fixated on extraterrestrial phenomenology, very fixated on our true ancient history uh, vis-a-vis Egypt. All right, all right, Then, then let me ask you this. Do you, would this be fair to say, that things were getting too hot, that people were beginning to get too close to possibly the truth, and somebody somewhere, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think as you're thinking now, wanted to shut it down, and I, I think you're saying that they used the Heaven Gate suicides, we'll put that in quotes now, uh, as a means to shut that down. Is that what you're saying? It's a possible hypothesis. I'm saying that's what happened. I'm saying that we should be asking harder questions because look at the political uh, boomerang effect. Um, there was a very scathing piece written by a reporter for the Washington Post who, before this, was going to write a favorable uh, story on serious extraterrestrial investigations, yes. a la, you know, John Mack and others, and, and he wrote a scathing, ironic, uh, you know, bitingly satirical report on four deluded people who don't know the difference between comets and stars and stuff like that. In other words, it, 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 it has made the subject cannon fodder once again. We've been taken almost back to the 1950s in terms of some people's perceptions. And, and you believe on purpose. Richard, hold tight. We're at the top of the hour. Rest. We will be back. My guest is Richard C. Hoagland. This is CBC. Hi, this is Joe Garagio. Toll free, west of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. That's who we are. Good morning. My guest from Manhattan is Richard C. Hoagland. And if you've missed the first two hours, 
He is suggesting the possibility the Heaven's Gate suicides were not suicides. We'll get back to him in a moment. 6438, absolutely fresh flowers. Now, back to Richard C. Hoagland. Richard, uh, welcome back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you really are right about one thing, and that is that um, I'm not aware of in, investi- uh, investigation details that would indicate um, that um, there was anything but a suicide. In other words, there were very few details released. They seem to conclude quickly and positively and completely that it was a suicide. And, and I'll give it back to you in one second, but I want to read the suicide note that came from heavensgate.com. Uh, and I want to discuss this with you a little bit. It reads as follows. I quote, Whether Hale-Bopp has a companion or not is irrelevant from our perspective. However, its arrival is joyously very significant to us at Heaven's Gate. The joy is that our older member in the evolutionary level above human, the kingdom of heaven, has made it clear to us that Hale-Bopp's approach is the marker we've been waiting for. The time for the arrival of the spacecraft from the level above human to take us home to their world in the literal heavens. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion, graduation, from the human evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew. If you study the material on this website, you will hopefully understand our joy and what our purpose here on Earth has been. You may even find your boarding pass to leave with us during this brief window, obviously inviting other suicides. We are so very thankful that we have been recipients of this opportunity to prepare for membership in their kingdom and to experience their boundless caring and nurturing, end quote. That is the uh, the note that uh, that was left on their website. Uh, now, all right, let me website. ask a question. Yeah, sure. Any Where question? does it mention suicide? Uh, nowhere. Exactly. Uh, it you talks make about, the assumption. It, it, it talks about graduation from... Yeah. Human ev- of you and everyone else who's dealt with this story is making an assumption because you don't think they're real spaceships. Well, I don't think they thought of it as suicide. But, but see, you're trying to put yourself in their mindset as opposed no, to no, reading no. the language. Oh, I see. Well, yeah, you're right. Don't, I'm don't reading the language. Don't metaphorize. Simply read the language. Okay, the language indicates that they are going to transcend human physical presence. Well, uh, most people can't get on a spaceship tonight. <laughs> All right? I can buy a ticket for a 747 to go to London, yeah. but because the generals have the car keys to our own, you know, rather remarkable vehicles, I can't get access to them. I know they exist. I've seen the video. I know the physics exists, but I can't get to them. So if I were to discuss leaving the Earth and you didn't know because of my background and what I've been doing and the investigation and all that we've discovered... You could obviously think that I was off my rocker, that I was planning to do something tragic or preemptory or whatever, when in fact I'm discussing with you a mundane reality that to me is as boring as getting on a 747. Well, yeah, but the, the, lar- is a context the larger overall picture here is important. If you're suggesting that this 
uh, alleged suicide was a murder, and that this was done to crush uh, further investigations. if I'm right. 39 murders. Was done to crush, crush any further investigation into uh, ufology, into what's present now, you're, and we're about to talk about that, you believe, uh, on and or around uh, our planet. Well, when you say crush, no, I mean, that's too final. I think, as in all psychological wars, there is an ebb and flow. And there is a great fear on the part of some that events are getting out of hand. Too much flow, not enough ebb. That's right. Uh-huh. So how do you turn the tide? How do you turn people off? Well, this would do it. Question. Uh, let me tell you something I know of, Richard. Uh, there is a 50-year anniversary going on at uh, Roswell uh, right now. Uh, Stan Friedman, a lot of other people I know, friends, are down there for this 50th anniversary of Roswell. Isn't it a little early? Um, well, I, it was July, wasn't it? Anyway, it's beginning. So that's not my point. Bear with me, and I'll connect the dots for you. Okay. Um, that event was to be sponsored by some very major um, uh, U.S. companies. After the Heaven's Gate incident, those companies canceled their sponsorship. Now, the event goes on nevertheless, but there was one major effect that just occurred. There was, as I said, supposed to be a favorable major piece in the Washington Post in motion before Heaven's Gate. Afterwards, the piece, or pieces, I think there were two of them, turned into a very different reportage than was portrayed before. Okay, Richard, look, if you look at this I'm note, just raising the possibility. I'm not saying that. I know this happened. I'm just saying that I'm intrigued that no one has asked any questions because these people obviously are kooks. Well, being No toward... reasonable sane person in 20th century America can really believe there are spacecraft zipping around that would take you anywhere. Yeah, we're about to get that, but uh, do that. But, um, Richard, when you read this note, um, every major media, the major networks, ABC, how they were out here at my house, all, all of them, I'm not even going to bother ticking them off, the big ones, covered this note. But you know what, Richard? In every single case, they ignored the first half of the note which would lead you away from believing that they believed there was some sort of spaceship behind Hale-Bopp and that it had been planned for 22 years and only showed the second half of the note and laid it on the whole UFO thing. So, I mean, there was a carefully orchestrated campaign uh, to lay this on ufology and and, uh, UFOs in general, and they grabbed onto that like... uh, uh, with a hundred pounds of pressure, and they weren't going to let go. Uh, no matter the facts, they weren't going to let go. They wanted to blame this on ufology. Well, what I thought interesting about the timepiece, the piece in Time magazine, yes, is that obviously it dealt with uh, Courtney Brown. Yes, it dealt with your show. Uh, it dealt with the with the discussion of the so-called companion, and then out of the blue. It, it dealt with you. It rang us into it. Yeah, I know. And that, to me, was really interesting because it was obviously a carefully calculated political act to create guilt by association. When I when I raise the specter that these people were uh, murdered, it's because 
you have a very broad and inquiring and expanding audience heart. Yes. And it is quite possible, not at all beyond their own possibility, that one of the targets of this was you and the show. Oh, absolutely. I don't... Uh... Because you had put so much on the ground in terms of the discussion around what was or what not hiding behind the uh, the comet. In, in in terms of that on the on the website, you could interpret that in a somewhat different way. If I know there are spacecraft, all right, and they're not from here, and it's not a theory, it's not a rumor, I know that because I know there's 747s, all right? It doesn't matter whether there's one behind that cloud or one sitting at LaGuardia or whatever. Right. There will be one along when I am told it will be there. So I would interpret from their perspective, and I'm again taking them at their word from 20 years of documentation, which my source has provided me some interesting uh, uh, perspectives on. They really believe, developing over this two-decade period, that there would come a time when physically, you know, those in this class would be physically removed. Yeah, but where was it written that they had to uh, extinguish physical lives? Uh, that that doesn't job. It wasn't. That's my point, Art. That's the contradiction. When you pack your bags and are waiting for the ship to land, you're not committing suicide. And this is the contradiction. Everybody in looking at this has assumed, mm-hmm. because they all know spaceships don't exist, that they had to be talking about suicide. Your point is well taken. Your point is well taken. Um, let's move on. If we can now, leave this alone and for a second talk about this new video. And I would uh, presume, maybe I shouldn't, that the new material is now up on the website. No, 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 no. This is not the video we're going to talk about tonight. The video is on the the process of analysis. This came to my uh, attention into our hands a couple of uh, few days ago. What is it? What is it? It is official footage from the space shuttle mission of Columbia in Earth orbit uh, in December of 1996. The mission where the astronauts were supposed to take several spacewalks and go outside and basically build uh, mock space station furniture, uh, duplicating some of the tasks that will be undertaken during the construction and assembly of the space station components later in the next couple just, of years. Just, right? prove, just prove they could do the work. Well, you know, you have temperature, you have time and, time and, uh, what do they call those? Time and motion studies. You know, you have a lot of. Right. Building something in orbit, we're not really ready to build a big thing in orbit. All right, it was. STS what? STS 80. STS stands for Space Transportation System. 80. That's NASA's technical name for the shuttle. Uh, mission number 80. All right. As the previous mission was STS 48. Well, STS-80 went up in December and spent something like 12 days. And along about the third or fourth day when they tried to go outside, remember, they couldn't get the hatch open? I recall. Well, it now turns out, in looking at this video, which we have, uh, you know, examined maybe 50, 60 times now. I've been making copies and sending them out, so I've had a lot of chance to look at it. I can well imagine why NASA didn't want to let their guys go out and play. Because the activity going on outside that spacecraft by things that are behaving 
in a stunningly non-Newtonian fashion. I mean, it's one thing when you see motion pictures of inside the shuttle to see astronauts tossing things back and forth. Right. And remember, Newton's first three laws. You know, first law, body in motion tends to remain in motion or at rest unless acted upon by an external force, right? Right. Meaning if I sail a film can across a cabin of the shuttle or the Apollo capsule, it will go until it hits the wall. Right, it won't stop in midair and decide. Oh, I'm going to go this way. Unless it it meets an equal and opposing force. Exactly. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. And now, if it's a rocket and it has its own propulsion system, obviously it can maneuver, it can station keep, and all that. But you see a visible effect of rockets when you look at this video. When when you get to see it, you are going to be mind boggled. There are a series of linking objects at various rates that change their blink rates as they move back and forth across the field of view. The camera zooms in on some of them and then zooms back. They maneuver into frame at relatively high speed. They then decelerate in the frame and hang motionless behind the shuttle at some indeterminate distance while the shuttle is moving in Earth orbit at five miles every second, a phenomenon we call station keeping. Then the same object decides it's bored with doing this, and it literally stops dead in space. And the way you can tell this is that suddenly it's sharing the motion of the clouds behind the shuttle, and it's moving off into the distance as the clouds 200 miles beneath are moving off toward the horizon. Well, stopping is truly impossible. Absolutely. Then it changes direction and drifts off the Earth again back into space. There's a kind of a twirling do do around a series of other objects that have appeared, you know, both from the Earth and from up in space. And all the while, the astronaut or whoever's controlling the camera is trying to keep these things in the field of view and zooming in and trying to get close-ups and zooming back. Okay, Richard, I've got a couple of questions. Um, the original mission where we saw these anomalous objects, was was that STS-48? That was 48. Uh, uh, September and, and 1991. Everybody almost who listens to my show will recall that. Uh, those are the ones where NASA said we had ice crystals. That's right. Uh, but Although surely... extensive analyses by myself, Dr. Mark Carlotto, and Dr. Jack Kasher independently. Uh, Kasher in particular, because he had the computer program to really do an extremely thorough detailed analysis, have unequivocally demonstrated to any physicist who really wants to look that what you see in that shuttle video footage that was downlinked by satellite live that night in September 1991 is not ice crystals. Jim Oberg notwithstanding. Right. Okay. Can't wait to see what Jim Oberg's response is going to be to the analysis we're going to put forth on this one. All right. Well, that was then. This is now. So this is a new item. I wanted to be sure the audience understood we were talking about something new here. brand new mission, 1996, and the behavior of the objects is probably two or three orders of magnitude more bizarre and more blatant and more non-Newtonian and decidedly non-ice crystals. I mean, if these are ice crystals, they're the most damnedest intelligent ice crystals I've ever seen. (laughs) All right. Richard, my question is this. After STS-48, it was widely believed that there would be no more 
shooting of random video out the window of the shuttle. Well, it's not only believed, but we know that there's a 50-second delay. Right. You so, operate on what, a seven-second delay? Yes, I do. Okay, well, NASA has put in a 50-second delay so that when you see the super on CNN or C-SPAN live NASA video, it ain't live, folks. It's almost a minute old by the time you get to see it. All right, so I have several questions. All of this anomalous video from STS-80 that you're talking about, mm -hmm. how did it get out? It's obvious. No, no it is Somebody isn't. wanted us to see it. Somebody Look, wanted us. All right, it's obvious now there's a war going on inside, a war between the keep it under a lid as desperately as long as possible and the other side, which is the hangout crowd. The folks that, for whatever reason, want to come clean. They want things to be revealed. They want us to come up to speed. But there's a lot more in heaven and earth than is dreamed of in your philosophy, Horatio. And apparently those folks won one the other night, back in December, when they downlinked this thing on Satellite Live. And it was recorded, like the other was recorded, by people around the country and they have provided us this video. Now, we are looking Richard, through official uh, who, sources. Who took this video? Was this taken from inside the shuttle through a window, or was it taken, uh, well, I guess it had to have been, or was no, it taken no, by actually, an external camera? It appears to be an external camera in the payload bay, and those cameras were typically, are typically under control of Houston by remote control. So there is a flight controller sitting at a, mm -hmm. at a console, uh, those, you know, Probably with a little joystick kind of thing or something. Yeah, those horrible blue-looking things. They replaced Mission Control with those, you know, very bizarre-looking blue consoles. Yes. And there's someone sitting there with a keypad and a bunch of buttons and a, and a couple of monitors who can switch between the payload bay cameras, and the astronauts are busily doing whatever they're doing, and they're not looking outside. So basically, there's one guy on the ground, probably a, a gal sometimes, who's in charge of downlinking and recording all this video. Well, whoever was in charge wanted us, those not inside, to see this video and arrange to have it broadcast over the teaser satellite live. All right. Well, I haven't seen the video, so uh, I would ask you. You've I'm already talked make, about it. I will make a copy. I will get it to you. Good. I will FedEx it to you. But, I mean, are, are you suggesting here on the air that this STS-80 video unambiguously... That's a strong word. Shows... Now, have you ever heard me use that before? No, I just used it. Let me tell you why I'm using that term. Well, I, I didn't. I, I have, you didn't I have yet. Had, I, you didn't yet. Are you now using I that term? I am now using it. I'll tell you why. I have had, in the last 48 hours, what I consider to be some expert experts reviewing this video. Yes. I've sent it to them. They are veterans of the aerospace community. Yes. They literally worked hand-in-glove with people like Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong and the other yeah. astronauts. High caliber. They have worked literally shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with all three space efforts of this nation, the manned efforts, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. Break coming up. These engineers designed these rendezvous and docking procedures. They know flight dynamics and trajectories backwards and forwards and up and down. They eat, breathe, and sleep it. In reviewing this video... Their statement is, it's mind-boggling. All right, hold it right there. We'll be right back to Richard Hoagland. My, my. This is CBC. I'm Art Bell. Stay right there.
Are you comfortable enough with the world? Five five seven four six two seven. Now back to Richard C. Hoagland and uh, Richard. Uh, you're saying that there are objects out there flying about the shuttle, uh, scooting about in our atmosphere, and I presume out. Um, would you say that? Now, now, for some reason, we have lost Richard again. Uh, before I even uh, went to ask uh, the question, I just noticed the line is once again dead. Now, I'm beginning to get a little curious about this because I have a system uh, here that locks in lines so that they cannot hang up. So I have no idea. I, have ab I must tell you, I have absolutely no idea how this can happen. None whatsoever. I'm going to get Richard back on the line, take a, another quick break here, sorry folks, and get Richard back on the line. But I am beginning to be uh, a little uh, irritated and concerned and suspicious about the loss of our connection. This is very bizarre stuff. So stand by. We'll be right back. How with 465 3572. All right. Uh, Richard, are you there? I am here. I'll tell you something, Richard. We have a system here that locks the line in, and uh, it's literally impossible for it to be hung up on. So we are losing the connection, and this is the second time around now, and it's beginning to bother me in more ways than one. But I'll leave that alone and let us just proceed, and I guess not let that bother us. You're, you, you've made a very important statement. You're saying things are flying around out there in space, in the atmosphere, outside the atmosphere, near the shuttle, and you're saying these things are what? Let it, let's just be clear. Do you think these things are our things, or do you think that it's likely these are UFOs? Well, let me let me start with what I can see in the video and what my colleagues are willing to attest to. And, and the reason I'm not mentioning it by name is I don't want to put you guys under a lot of pressure, but uh, I want them to do their work in quiet and peace. And in a few days, you That's know, when, when they've given the analysis, we'll put it on the web, we'll provide okay. it to you. You can interview them, you can talk to them, they'll stand behind their work. I mean, we're not keeping any secrets here. All right. I just want them to have peace and quiet because it's really important that this be done right the first time. This is a major breakthrough. I agree. It's an order of magnitude or more beyond what we had with STS-48. And let me start with what we can absolutely say in terms of the video. All right. This is not ice crystals. It's not debris. It's not rockets. It's not meteors. It's nothing conventional, nothing trivial. What we're looking at is obviously intelligently controlled uh, systems, vehicles, yeah. uh, whatever, that move across the field of view, hang motionless, station keep with the shuttle for a while, yeah. then decide to move in another direction and rendezvous with each other and twinkle. And there's one portion where, and this is really amazing, uh, and I didn't notice it until I looked at the tape a couple, three or four times. When you have a chunk of ice in space or, or debris, it normally is not just sitting there. It's moving in a certain direction. It continues to move. Absolutely. Out of sight, all right? Yes. And it's usually tumbling because of the forces that kicked it off. Let's sure. say it's a chunk of urine from a urine dump. It's frozen in space. When it releases from the shuttle, there are torques. It's tumbling end over end. And if you if it's far enough away and you can't see the chunk of ice, what you'll see is it reflecting sunlight Blink, 
blink, blink, blink, blink. So okay? we're, we're not dealing with tumbling urine. Well, my point is that objects in space, not under intelligent or self-control, move, is, move is, yeah. in straight lines, and right. they tumble, and they blink at a constant rate. In one part of this video, the camera operator, who was presumably at Houston, right. is really intrigued with this thing which flew into the field of view, station kept for a while, then left at five miles per second without getting dimmer. That's one really neat trick. How does a little tiny ice particle smaller than your fingernail get obviously 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles away from the shuttle and stay the same brightness? There's a little thing called the 1 over R squared law, the inverse square law. If I am shining by reflected sunlight, and I start out at a certain distance from you, and then I move back to twice that distance, mm -hmm. the laws of physics say that I will apparently become one quarter as bright. I will be dimmed by a factor of four. Two squared divided into one. Of course, right? yes. Three times farther away, I'm one-ninth as bright. Five times, one-twenty-fifth as bright, and so on. When these objects move away, they maintain constant brightness, even though it's demonstrable, because they're moving with the ground speed of the clouds below the shuttle, that they're getting five miles further away each second. So we're seeing several laws of physics just casually, rather frivolously, violated by what these things are doing. And the most interesting and the most hilarious, and that's why I'm really smiling about this, is when the camera operator on the ground through the teeter satellite remote control sends up the signals to frantically zoom in on one set of objects kind of cavorting at the edge of, of the atmosphere above the airglow, you can see before he starts the zoom that this object is blinking at a certain rate. You can time it. Blink, 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 right. blink. Right. As he zooms in, the blink rate suddenly goes blink, 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 blink. Right, okay. And when he zooms back out, it goes back to blink, blink, blink. <laughs> In other words, whoever it was, was waving through the lights. Now, there's no way that an ice particle can know, A, that you're zooming in on it and change its blink rate, change its tumbling rate. The fact that whoever is in this vehicle can change the lighting means that it knows it is being photographed. And it's semaphoring back. Now, if I show this tape to the Heaven's Gate folks, there would be no doubt that they'd be packing their bags to get on these things if they were told that's what they were to expect. All right. What do you estimate or imagine these objects to be, Richard? Well, they're obviously spacecraft. The big question, you asked it correctly, is are they ours or someone else's? Mm -hmm. And my rigorous answer is, I don't know, dot, 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 yes. I strongly suspect that some of them are ours. The reason I suspect this is because, A, we know there's a physics that makes this possible. I had a fax earlier tonight asking me if the events taking place over Phoenix, the so-called UFOs oh, yes. that appeared over Phoenix, which, yes. by the way, looked remarkably like these things. And there were seven of them, and they were in a cometary arc. And according to some information, they hung over the horizon at 19.5 degrees. God, is that a familiar Yes. Anyway, um, their motive power is, yes, hyperdimensional. That's the physics of moving through space without rockets, all right? That's 
We're all on the same page. Now, we know from tracking the papers and the studies and whatever that, that 30, 40 years ago, our guys were looking into this physics in terms of technology. It went underground. It went black. It went secret. And I would not be at all surprised, in fact, I really believe it's probably de rigueur, that after 30 or 40 years under wraps, this technology is now mature, and some of what we're seeing cavorting around is our stuff, our guys, our hyperdimensional spacecraft, as I said. Some of, but not necessarily all of. Well, the reason I use the qualifier is because the blink rates are different, the behavior seems to be different, and some of them appear to be used, being used for target practice. Things are being exchanged. There are high-velocity things moving from one vehicle or one blinking light to another, which is kind of interesting. In fact, it's this kind of interesting stuff that if I were Houston and the guy said, well, we were ready to go outside, Houston, I would have said, over my dead body, are you going outside? Have something happen with the door. Well, uh, my recollection is when they got back down on the ground, they found a screw or something that was lodged in the mechanism that wouldn't allow them to open the door. Art, really. I'm just repeating what they said. No, exactly. You're repeating what they said. Yeah. Were you there to see the screw? Absolutely not. Do you know if anybody actually saw a screw? Hell no. Do you know of any engineering group that went and did a failure analysis? on the actual hardware as opposed to simulations, which, by the way, NASA, the honest side of NASA during this incident, uh, went around the clock trying to duplicate the failure. And couldn't. And they couldn't. Anyway, um, this is why I am extraordinarily skeptical. So you think they were ordered not to go out? Absolutely, and Uh, they had to come up with a cover story. um, And when I present this video to appropriate people in the media who I know quite well. When will that occur, by the way? When we're ready. Well, I want this analysis done by people whose integrity and expertise is impeccable. This, they're the folks that got it, us to and from the moon. Okay, this, this is very important, though. Uh, guess for me at a timeline. Uh, we're talking days. Days, okay. Uh, yeah, days. Right. Well, we're on a fast track here. Okay. Remember, DEFCON 4 is in operation tonight. When did you get... Uh, can you tell us where you got this video? No, not yet. All right. All right. Uh, What I'm trying to do is to get additional copies from other sources. No single point failure. Um, And it is so interesting that I really want corroboration with other uh, sources. But there's little doubt in my mind that it is absolutely for real because it's got all the right prerequisites. It's got... There's there's no way uh, it could be fake a la the Roswell All right, right, we're not going to get to this yet, but before the top of the hour, I want to mention this. Uh, There is on Richard Hoagland's webpage, which you can reach through mine or go to his directly, it doesn't matter, uh, something that we are about to discuss. So you should go up there and begin to take a look right now. Go to www.artbell.com and go to Richard Hoagland's webpage and uh, go to the top item, which says, A Key to the Mystery of Comet Origins. And begin to take a look at that, because we're going to start talking about that after the top of the hour. Just wanted to get that out so they can begin to go up there and take a look, uh, Richard. Good. I've now, been killing myself to prepare it for tonight. I, I know. <laughs> and uh, and so it is there now, everybody. You can take a look. Um, Richard, as you know, 
I, I want to know if this is tied in, and I guess you're the only person I know to ask, really. I've, I've authored a book. You know about it. It's called The Quickening. I heard something about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, Richard... I've authored a book. It, it's called The Monuments of Mars. Exactly. It, it, it docu- Fourth edition. Okay. It dig- we even have an 800 number. Uh, we'll get so to it. So it's rumored. We'll get it on. Um, <laughs> Richard, it documents a lot of crap that's going wrong on Earth right now, socially, uh, in the economy, um, uh, with uh, the weather, with uh, Earth changes, with every single aspect of human endeavor. It documents things going south at a fast rate and an ever-increasing rate. And I've got a feeling that what this human race is headed toward, in what I call the quickening, ties in, in some way, with with what's beginning to go on at a faster and faster rate that you've been talking about tonight. It all ties in somehow. Now, I'm just a talk show host, and I documented what's going on, I think, quite well in that book. But I would like to know if you think it ties in to this headlong race. We're, we're headed toward an event, Richard, of some sort. Well, you want the long or the short answer? Um, and for me, that's something. Uh, I know well. I know you well enough to ask for the short answer. <laughs> uh, yes, unequivocally. Look, I've been talking about a changing physics. Uh, we have proposed, based on this 15 years of trying to figure this out, that we are all immersed. Reality is modulated by a background physics, which is variable. I'll give you one very critical example. I have had a researcher in the field for the last couple of weeks trying to get to the bottom of a very interesting mystery, which is why 20-some years ago when we established the atomic clock in Boulder at the National Bureau of Standards, why in the last 24 years have we had to add 20 leap seconds to the atomic clock to keep it in synchronization with the rotation of the Earth? And the answer is? Something's changing. And when you try to get a serious straight answer from the physicists and the geologists and the geophysicists, nobody involved with this will give you a straight answer. Mm -hmm. And it is mind-boggling to imagine that the Earth has slowed down by 20 seconds in the last 24 years, given that measured rates of slowdown or de-spinning of the Earth are usually measured in milliseconds over thousands of years. Um, On the other hand, it is equally insane to believe that these incredibly precise atomic clocks, which now are the basis of the GPS system and military aids and the search crews looking for the A-10 and the positioning and guidance of the ICBMs and you know, boaters and hikers and skiers, and I mean, our entire infrastructure depends on constant atomic time to within seconds in thousands of years. It's insane to believe that those clocks are all going crazy and have to be readjusted every year. We're going to add another leap second on June uh, 30th of this year, a few, a few weeks from now. So what's the answer? The answer is the physics is changing, and none of the folks in the know have the guts to simply level with all the rest of us because this changing physics in their mind presages 
if I can use a bellism, some event. Now, actually, Art, it's not an event. It's a series of events. That may well be. It is a, if, if you would draw this on graph paper. I'm not a prophet. I don't know. I don't come to conclusions up. about what it's going to be. I don't know, Richard. The no. physics is changing. I keep terming it a rise in the physics. Why do I call it a rise? Because for one thing, things are happening at a faster and faster pace. That's a fact. That's the quickening you talk about. You bet. For another thing, things are becoming more polarized. The good are getting better and the bad are getting worse. Mm -hmm. You have huge mass, uh, you know, uh, conflagrations. You have inordinate examples of human inhumanity to other humans. I'm thinking of Rwanda and things like that. Well, we could go on forever. Politics, politics has become irrelevant. You mentioned it yourself. Politics without, is irrelevant. Without cares how new Gingrich pays is fine. completely irrelevant. That's right. And, and only CNN and C-SPAN seem to care anymore. Uh, the American people are light years beyond it. They don't give a damn where, you know, uh, what's his name, borrowed his money from. Yeah, you're exactly right. He's not going to pay it back anyway. So other things are going to happen. So who cares? <laughs> um, it's interesting that they put off the payback till after 2005. That's another whole show, all right, where what they think is going to happen and when. All right? Did you notice a few uh, months ago that we were absolutely on both sides deadlocked over getting a balanced budget? Yes. And it had to be in... Seven years? Yes. How many times has seven years come up? Seven years, seven years, seven years. Well, seven is tetrahedral, and 2002 is the magic date. All right, Richard. Somebody thinks something's going to happen. Okay, hold tight. We'll pick this up after the top of the hour. Um, all right, let me quickly mention, uh, and then we will hear from Richard after the top of the hour about his book. I do have a book. It's called The Quickening, and the, um, the first edition is nearly sold out. If you order now... You will get an autographed first edition copy. Within the next few days, it's going to be sold out. I've never seen, I guess my publisher said it, he's never seen anything like it in his whole life. So if you want an autographed copy of The Quickening, call 1-800-864-7991. That's 1-800-864-7991 right now. We'll be right back. Call Art Bell toll free. West of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. It is. Good morning. My guest is Richard C. Hoagland. Engstrom Science Award winner, one-time advisor to NASA and Walter Cronkite, and much more. <laughs> That'll have to do. If you're over 522-8863, the Sea Crane Company. Uh, now, um, back to Richard C. Hoagland. And, Richard, I want to give you an opportunity before we proceed. You have, indeed have your own book. In fact, you have 
How many publications do you have, Richard? <laughs> I've lost track. <laughs> we have been publishing on this for the last 15 years, and it includes, you know, the books and the monographs and the various videos uh, at NASA and the UN and Ohio State and other places. And we've assembled them all in our own uh, website, uh, Ship Stores. Sure. Which can be reached now through your website. Mm -hmm. If people go to the top of your website, they'll see a little blurb regarding Enterprise and myself tonight. Just click on it. Click on that, and it takes you directly to the good stuff. Yep. From which you can go back to our homepage and start reading this interesting stuff on Hale-Bopp that we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. Right. Um, The way we support this investigation is via this material. We are not supported by government grants. We do have some private donors uh, who are providing us some very important uh, assistance in doing several research projects. Computer time, for instance, to analyze leaked videos of spacecraft zipping around the shuttle is not cheap. And to produce high-quality video product from that to provide the information to people out of the hinterlands all across the country tonight, that's not cheap. Yeah, it all costs money. So it, to defray this and to keep this investigation going in the in the uh, uh, face of some significant political opposition, and we won't mention that any further, but it's obvious that somebody doesn't want people to know this stuff, requires an independent source of funds. Well, the simplest and most direct way of doing that is to basically let people pay the freight. If you think this is valuable, you know, buy a book. Buy a video, make a gift to somebody, and let them in on what's going on. All right, if you don't think it's valuable, you won't support it. All right, it's let's, that simple. Richard, let's try this approach. If you're new to Richard Hoagland and all that's being said tonight, and you were to try to recommend a good starting point for somebody to order uh, one of your books or tapes, what would you recommend they order? Well, if you want to go historically and chronologically, I would order the start in 19... Uh, when did I start? 1983. Mm-hmm which has now gone through four editions. We recently revised it just at the end of last year, January, and it's now in its uh, fourth edition. Okay. Um, it's available through 1-800-864-7991. That is a very familiar number. Doesn't that have a familiar ring to it? one 800-864-7991. Probably not. Well, that's a nice idea. Why don't we say to Werner, you know, think about it, all right? (laughs) Apparently, we're in the catalog. Uh, And uh, I haven't seen the catalog yet, but I understand that they've done a neat job. Anyway, if you really want to get a a feel for how this all started and why, you know, a former Cronkite science advisor and Angstrom medal winner and all that got into airy-fairy extraterrestrial ruins, this gives you the blow-by-blow, the If you don't have a lot of time to read, and as an author, you'll make me cry if I hear you don't. <laughs> but if you don't have a lot of time to read, then I would recommend that if you're brand new to this, you get one of the videos. I was invited to NASA five times over the last several years in the front door, right. briefed thousands of the rank and file of engineers. Uh, you'd think they would have gotten wise to us after the first couple of times, but they kept inviting us back. Isn't that interesting? It is, yes. So we put one of these on video, the first major briefing where the uh, head of the Lewis Research Center literally told the assembled audience, which was about a 1,000 engineers and scientists in the auditorium there in Cleveland, as well as 4,000 around the rest of the center watching on closed-circuit television, all of whom are, were given an official 
government ID account number so they could charge their time watching my briefing to their official account. Isn't this wow. rather extraordinary? That is, yes. Very, um, very anyway, we, we, they taped the whole thing. All right, so they And they get... provided us the tape, and we've made that tape now available, and it's called the, the NASA Sidonia Briefing. That's tape number one. Then we went on to the UN through Susan's efforts back in 92. That is really an overview, not only of the Mars material, but also of the physics. You'll hear me mention 19.5 an awful lot on Art Bell's show. Mm-hmm. That's because it turns out that the ruins at Sidonia on Mars and on the moon have been encoded with a particular recurring, repeating, redundant geometry. Is that redundant enough? And that geometry is in turn the code key to a new slash very old physics, it turns out. A physics which not only allows us to predict the quickening, the rise in physics, the changes in weather, the geology, the, you know, bursts coming from the sun, all those interesting things, but also to basically limb out the motive power to allow spaceships like we're seeing in this STS-80 video, which is not yet available but will be, will join the pack pretty soon, to be explic- explained. It's getting late. Yeah, it is. Um. All right. Uh, so, so all of that, monu- 1-800-864-7991. Then, of course, there are the monographs. There's the work on Clementine we've been doing on the moon, which is anal- analyzing, you know, the Apollo imagery, the lunar orbiter imagery, the Clementine data. Then there is the paper itself that is getting a lot of press this week that Ted Koppel very gently and graciously acknowledged. Yes. And Terrence Dickinson and Arthur Clark and Bob Jastro and many others that I wrote almost 20 years ago, we have resurrected it from the stacks of Star and Sky, Ah, May She Rest in Peace. Mm. We put it together. We provide it to you in hard copy. I will even sign it if you want. All you have to do is call 1-800-864-7991 or log on to our website, enterprisemission.com, or our Bell's website, and you'll see the Enterprise logo at the top. Follow the little arrows, and it will take you Two ships stores. All right. Uh, Richard, I want a uh, couple of real quick things, then we'll go on to, uh, Hell Bob. And it is this. Um, last night on the program, I had an array of people. One of them was Peter Davenport from the UFO oh, Reporting yeah. Center in Seattle. No, Peter, quite well. Um, he had some GOES 9 satellite photographs that appeared to show, uh, an anomaly both in infrared and, um, analog. Uh, These were sensors on the same spacecraft, right? Yeah, that's right. Two different sensors. Uh, actually, five sensors, including radar and some others. I'm not, I really don't know, but okay. a total of five sensors that saw this thing. Peter talked to the government employee uh, who had received the images. He specifically asked him if it was an artifact, could be an artifact, you know, some sort of uh, packet drop or something that would create an artifact. A glitch. That employee very strongly suggested no, but now I've received this. We have received some technical information that explains how an anomaly such as this can appear in both visible and infrared. At this point, we believe the likely explanation is a data drop caused by missing header or trailer information in multiple data blocks on a single scan line from the imager instrument. Um, Now, earlier when I talked to Peter, he had again spoken to this government employee who was standing by his guns. 
So we have conflicting information, as we usually do, about whether we've really got something here anomalous or whether we've got a simple uh, information drop. I don't know which it is, but it sure is interesting. But keep in mind, we're at DEFCON 4. Well, why is Cheyenne Mountain on alert? And why did the alert coincide with the appearance of this anomalous object on synchronous satellite data over the Pacific just off San Francisco. I, I don't know. Oh, do you know for certain that we're at DEFCON 4, or is there a, a lesser security lockdown procedure uh, for Cheyenne? I had a fax tonight claiming we were at DEFCON 4. We have tried to actually ascertain the level of the alert, and our sources at CNN cannot get that information. All they're saying is no visitors are being allowed. They've got concrete barriers up. They're not allowing vehicular traffic in. In essence, they've got a good excuse to seal the mountain down. Now, the only reason you seal a nuclear-hardened facility, because as we said at the top of the show hours ago, a terrorist threat is not credible against a place like Cheyenne Mountain. Yeah. Although there are some facilities, Art, that are outside, not protected. Uh, I find that rather remarkable. But the general interviewed said the specific target was Cheyenne Mountain. Itself. Itself. Well... This sounds, again, as I said a while ago, like a good excuse to keep people out because there's something going on on the screens you don't want unwanted eyes to see. Now, if there is something hanging in orbit, see, again, if we didn't have this STS-80 video, mm -hmm. I would be looking at this very differently, and I would not be discussing this as forthrightly and as candidly as I am able to this morning. But we got the goods. We have waited all these years for when someone would give us the goods. Now, you literally can almost see them waving. When you zoom in on something out the shuttle and it blinks back at you, changes frequency, and it's not, by the way, and we've eliminated this as a trivial explanation, when you zoom in and out on a scanning TV system, you can get what's called a moray effect. It's like a beat frequency phenomenon mm -hmm. because the scan is one rhythmic uh, process taking place and the tumbling or the blinking is another. So you put the two together. It's, it's the reason, for instance, that wagon wheels on old westerns would go backward on the stagecoaches because of the stroboscopic effect between the shutter and the wheel turning. Yes. You have seen that. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, that's an illusion created by two rhythmic processes occurring at different frequency rates. That's not what we're seeing here because the different blinking maintains a different blinking rate when the zoom stops. All right. When there's no relative motion of the camera and the, uh, uh, the phosphor relative to the object out in front. Oh, I understand the reasoning. Uh -huh. Well, I want the audience who's not seen this to get very clearly in mind that when they see this video, which will be provided through... Enterprise shortly in the next, uh, hopefully, you know, couple, three weeks or maybe two weeks at the outside. Uh, studio time, we have to book and all that. Sure. Um, they're going to be boggled. And if that is only a precursor, remember, that was shot back in December. Mm -hmm. Who knows what's going on upstairs? Who knows why the shuttle that went up on a 16-day mission a few days ago yes. suddenly came down? I mean, we discussed uh, at that time that maybe there were other reasons than broken fuel cells. And I still think that it was rather interesting 
that uh, they came down so quickly, but not as quickly as one would imagine in terms of an emergency. They came down within four days when the solar flare that was predicted uh, was going to hit. Okay. All right. One quick backtrack, and then away we go on the comet, because we've got to get to that. But I think this is worth reading. It's from Sherry in Hollywood, California. Dear Art, I think Mr. Hoagland just might be right about the Heaven's Gate event. And if so, one might look for the same secret society to be behind the Courtney Brown fake photo. It certainly makes more sense to think that Courtney was acting out of fear than out of some strange ethical um, a sense when he refused to reveal the source of the photograph. Does that make any sense? Well, keeping in mind that I was not involved in the whole companion thing. In fact, I tried gently to bring Tom Van Flandern on. Isn't right. that a great segue? <laughs> right. Well, it's a good uh, question. To basically though. look at another set of, of, of reasons why this comet was extraordinary, having nothing to do with potential spaceships. Yeah, I know. Um, that notwithstanding... If if we are in a war, and I don't use that term literally, I'm using it metaphorically yeah, and psychologically, a war for the hearts and minds and souls of people. Yes. About reality. What's at stake is reality. Sure. All right? Then, you know, that old uh, saw all's fair in love and war. There are casualties in war. If If one side believes it has absolute truth, and it's absolutely the guardian of that truth, and it will do anything because it's its heaven-sent mandate to keep the truth on track, then what are a few casualties here and there along the way? In other words, we have ample human experience that when the stakes are high enough, casualties are acknowledged as being acceptable and inevitable. So, in other words, you agree it might be so. Some may be yeah. expendable. Mm -hmm. And again, this is a hypothesis, and I'm raising it because there could be people out there in your very vast and quite alert audience that may have information that they themselves don't realize they have. Because it's almost like unless someone enunciates it, and I've been listening and listening and listening, and people have come close, but no one has hit it on the head. So tonight, as we were discussing this, I said to myself, well, Hoagland, do you want to go out on one more limb? limb right. That cracking sound you hear behind you. And then I said, what the hell? I have determined, and I said it on your show before, I'm going to tell the truth wherever it leads. And the only way I can keep confidence with, you know, this constituency, with people who are following what we're finding out, is to tell them what we know just about when we know it. Now, there are certain times when we know a little more than I can talk about and I'm protecting sources like tonight, the analysis of this tape. Right. But by and large, when I have verifiable, demonstrable evidence, I will go out on the limb. And the, and the old Navy thing was a clear example where we took a leap into the unknown and marvelous things came, came back. Which, by the way, reminds me, I want to close one loop. One of the things reported were some people found scrawled in the cement, scratched in the cement of the sidewalk mm -hmm. or on the store or in the form of uh, neon projections, there was a common symbol outside of certain old Navy stores, almost like an identification, this is the place. What I need is for people to either fax me or better yet take photographs of these symbols. I'm not going to tell you what the symbol was, 
because I want independent confirmation and I want to lead the witnesses, all right? Right. I want you to send the photographs to 122 Dodd, the Enterprise Mission. Look up our website. Go into Art's website. It's 122 Dodd, Weehawken, New Jersey, 07087. Or fax me at 201-271-1703. And as many people who can provide me independent confirmation that these symbols, in fact, identify the interesting Old Navy stores from just the -the run-of-the-mill Old Navy stores, the better. Uh, All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, Now, Comet Hailbach. Uh, there has been a great continuing argument about whether we have got a single large snowball, dirty snowball comet, that's what they call it, that's what uh, Alan Hale called it on this program, or whether, as Tom Van Flanderen has suggested, uh, several or even many orbiting objects that make up what we think is one object. Uh, do I have that about right? That's the, exactly right. Uh-huh. And the reason that we care, I mean, if, if it was just because we want to know whether it's one object or a set of objects, I would, I'd be, I'd be getting a lot of sleep right now, all right? Um, Why is it important? Ah, it is critical. It is crucial. It is perhaps the single most important astronomical observation that can be made in our solar system. All right. Because it's the key to our past. All right. Hold it right there. Uh, to get Richard's materials or to get my book, The Quickening, Richard uh, uh, has a whole bunch of materials. Monuments of Mars would be a good place to start. And my book, The Quickening, you can call now 1-800-864-7991. That's 1-800-864-7991. Hail Bob, just ahead. Parents. Art Bell is taking calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. Well, a lot of hot information on this show this morning. If you would like a copy of this program, it's going to be a five-hour program, no doubt about that. You can begin ordering it now at 1-800-917-4278. That's one 800 917-4278. Richard C. Hoagland, back in a moment. Why is it a good idea? 74627. That's 1-800-557-4627. You've got nothing to lose but the fat. All right. Now we're going to talk a bit about Hale Bob. And uh, I think the key question is, again, why it would be important whether a comet uh, like Hale Bob or other comets would be made up of uh, one single entity, one dirty snowball burning its way uh, across the cosmos, or many orbiting items that appear to be one item. Richard, why is it important? Okay. As I said before the break, 
Because if it's more than one chunk, more than one iceberg, yes. then via the calculable properties of a discipline called celestial mechanics, which is the art form of calculating orbits of celestial objects, then right. um, Flandern has demonstrated compellingly that if it's more than one chunk, that those chunks got together not in a primordial process, but in a catastrophic former planet that blew up in relatively recent solar system history and changed everything. The so-called quickening, the change in physics, the deterioration of the general solar system environment, a lot of other things that are going to happen to this planet that have happened before on a cyclic pattern in terms of what we've been working on. Mm-hmm. All of this can be traced now to Van Flandern's so-called missing planet. And the shrapnel from that gargantuan, humongous, incredible, mind-bending explosion, if you can imagine an entire world, you know, blazing into incandescence and the pieces, you know, that which is not vaporized, shooting into space in all directions. Right. Most of them to escape forever from the solar system. And a few pieces raining back after millions of years to return as the long-period comets that we see. You know, I threw a ball into the air, it fell to Earth, I know not where. The things that are coming back, the long-period comets with millions of years periods, if Tom is right, are the returning fragments of a world that was destroyed. What does that mean for us Well, today? In, 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 in concrete terms, two things happen. Because this world was shattered, and I say was because the evidence now is pretty compelling that he's right, that Tom is right. Because this world was shattered, the, the physics of the solar system took a tragic turn. They took a left-hand turn. We are not living in the appropriate hyperdimensional environment that we should be living in. Things have gotten weird. I mean, just look at history. You really think sane people do this to each other on a developing planet elsewhere than here? We now have a possible reason why life on Earth is basically quite strange. And that's a whole other discussion, which I can't get into right now, but we should probably spend some time discussing it some night when we know a little more, all right? The other important thing is you have to ask the question, what would cause a planet to blow up? Well, we had in the last 30 years a bunch of guys, generals, you know, who basically crafted a policy called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. Right. Where we threatened a counterpart on the other side of the planet, a, a people with reasonably high technology and cultural values and history and, and all the human qualities that we have. Sure. We threatened them with annihilation as well as the rest of the world, just by casual, you know, uh, side effect, if they launched uh, a nuclear strike against us. Right. And it was called a sane policy, but it was called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. Now, that's only with H-bombs. If those same people with the same mentality 
in the 50s and early 60s, you know, the generals like, and I'm trying to remember, the, uh, Curtis LeMay. Yes. Who was a quintessential example of a, of a man, of a madman out of control, wearing a business suit, smoking cigars, who appeared on a day-to-day basis to be totally sane, but in fact was totally insane. Totally insane. Why do you say that? Because if you read any of his writings and read what he did and the policies he implemented, he quietly could contemplate the deaths of millions of people just because he wanted to win. He, when the, when the Cuban Missile Christ was, you know, at its height, at its maximum danger. Well, there was a time, Richard, in, in our history when we thought or even imagined that a nuclear war was winnable. Well, not by anybody who really knew. Uh, well, it became less and less viable as um, a, 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 a theory. Remember, Oppenheimer himself, when he built the damn thing, when he saw it go off, he said, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Yes, of course. Imagine the power to destroy a world in the hands of someone like Curtis LeMay. And it's if Tom Van Flandern is pursued to his logical conclusion, then the fact that in the nucleus of Hale-Bopp there is not one object tonight spinning, but apparently several objects orbiting each other, and we'll get to how we have inferred that in a, in a few minutes, that is telling us that, A, the comets are, in fact, the raining back fragments of this former shattered world. I have become death, destroyer of worlds. And the destruction of that world by the mindset that fueled the Cold War at its height, only with bigger toys and playthings yeah. that could destroy whole planets, that has irrevocably changed solar system history for the worse I, in the I, last several million you know, years. I, I would like to argue with you a little bit on your statement of insanity of General LeMay. I served under him. Um, you know, those were different times. I mean, it was his job to consider what would happen or what, what might happen if we were attacked and how we would respond. And, I, I you, you know, nuclear war, of course, is in itself insane. But I'm not sure General LeMay was actually insane. It was his job to consider the unthinkable. Well, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I don't want to get into it, you know, a, a shouting match over Curtis LeMay. He's gone. Um, but during the, the crisis, when Kennedy was trying every way to keep sure. from annihilating all of us, sure. LeMay was pushing the envelope, and he wanted a war with the Ruskies. He did everything... But push the button. And that, to me, is evidence of, of congenital insanity. Because LeMay at that time, this was now in 1962, all right? Yes. We knew enough. We had enough tests. Enough islands had been vaporized and blown away. Enough of the in-crowd had seen what this technology was doing to the hyperdimensional physics. And that's another long discussion, all right? Remember, it was Curtis LeMay that told Senator Barry Goldwater to take a long walk off a short pier oh, I know. when Goldwater tried to find out as a civilian authority, actually, as he said, chairman of the committee. Yeah, I know. He's that said, said actually, and that, that things that couldn't even be repeated on the air, and I've yeah. got Goldwater saying that, so I know yes. it's true. You know. Yes, well, this man had abrogated himself powers that even presidents are only supposed to hold, and he felt nothing but contempt for the civilian constitutional authority because he felt that generals knew how to fight and win wars yeah. better 
than civilians. He, ne he nevertheless, though, did uh, continue to take orders from civilian authority constitutionally. Yeah, and we're all alive because he did, aren't we? Well, that's right. So the system worked. My point is that if you look at his policies, if you look at the carpet bombing, if you look at the saturation bombing, the so-called strategic bombing, which he instigated in World War II, where for the first time mass civilians were simply massacred indiscriminately, Dresden, etc. Yes. Is that sanity? No, Art? no, no, no Richard. It's not war, war is not sane. All right. But that kind of war, there used to be a chivalry with war. A soldier died, but civilians were protected. Curtis LeMay and people like him, you know, uh, changed that whole equation, made it thinkable to consider the unthinkable, which included the mass extinction of millions of people in an all-out nuclear exchange to preserve, you know, remember that phrase, better dead than red? Oh, of course. That came from that kind of thinking. What I'm saying my metaphor is that if you had equipped those people, of which LeMay was only one, there were a lot of others, all right, mm -hmm. with the proper tools, they would have given half a chance, blown up the planet to save it. And it looks like if Van Flandern's data is now to be, you know, followed, that someone did that millions of years ago. This raises such profound questions, given the existence of demonstrable artifacts on other nearby worlds tonight, on Mars and the moon, and maybe other places. Europa? Um, no, Europa's... No artifacts on, on I Europa. I don't think, I don't think so. Europa but has its own unique... Possibly life. Uh, yeah, obviously, and we're talking about an ocean, we're talking no, about no. millions of years. Well, we're we're, we're going to get sidetracked here. So uh, your, your point is that My on the moon... My point is that given that this solar system has had obviously intelligent activity prior to some incredible line of demarcation. Yes, sir. Where on the one side of the line things were going along and then suddenly there's a whole missing planet. Yep. Everything goes downhill from that point and that's why it's critical to verify if Tom Van Flandern's right. All right, Richard, if Van Flandern is correct and there was a planet that blew up Blue to was smithereens. blown up. Blown up. All right, blown up. Was detonated. All right, fine, blown up, detonated. Um, as a possibility. All right, let's say, for the sake of conversation, that that is an accurate model. Um, is this thing I describe now, loosely called a quickening, is that... It's a direct result. It, in other words, are we in the process of repeating that ancient history again, and is the quickening that process? It's on a much smaller scale, and again, I'm now talking about this physics we've been working on. Yep. And what happens, you see, is that when, and this is hard to describe without the diagrams, but if you, if you look at the solar system as a system, mm -hmm. which at one point prior to this catastrophe which is of unimaginable consequences and magnitude, was in tune, was a in-tune, harmonious system. Remember Kepler's phrase, the harmony of the spheres, the music of the spheres? Yes, sir. This was a poetic metaphor for a physics that related all the solar system objects to each other at a level where each interacted like a piece of well-oiled machinery in its place, in its orbit, with its frequency, doing what it was designed to do. Now, you take one of those components out, you blow it up. The rest of the system 
notices that something's missing. Um, it's like take any well well uh, crafted piece of machinery. You take a gear out, you take uh, you know sprockets out, you take the you know you 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 detune your carburetor or whatever, and what used to run smoothly runs badly if at all, mm-hmm. or runs downhill or grinds to a shuddering halt. In other words, if you gum up the machinery, things don't work. And removing a major planet in the planetary system in terms of what we've now reconstructed for this physics had shattering and overwhelming long-term consequences. Not only physical, in terms of the geology of other worlds, in terms of axes, planetary axes, flipping back and forth, searching for an equilibrium that can't be found, but also a profound effect on psychology, on extinctions, on appearance of strange organisms, on the disappearance of other organisms, on aberrations of weather and vagaries of geology, all of which rises and falls in a series of short and long-term cycles as the system as a whole is desperately trying to reach a new equilibrium, which it can never find. Richard, where do you think we are in that cycle now? Coming up to a nodal point. You talk about an event, I talk about a nodal point. What's a nodal point? It's when the the curves peak. Yeah. When something happens. In, 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 in mathematics, it's called a singularity. When all the numbers go to zero or go to infinity. Mm-hmm. We're coming up on a nodal point, on a singularity. And I can make some modest predictions based again on hyperdimensional physics as to what might be happening and some specific predictions in terms of indicators that that which we're predicting is in fact occurring. But in terms of the specifics, an awful lot of it has to do with mindset. It has to do with how we approach this singularity, whether we succumb to what is now called millennial madness, Mm -hmm. which is another word for fear, Mm -hmm. or we look with anticipation at the possibilities. Because remember, this physics makes things possible that have not been possible for a long time. By its very nature, as it rises, we gain more control. And that's an unseen aspect which is not being promulgated. In fact, the fear mongers would like to have you believe things are more out of control when in fact, because the physics is rising, if you decide you're going to see a different outcome, there will be more control to that which you would like to see occur. Well, it sounds like you're talking, uh, you're beginning to to mix um, physics with metaphysics. Oh, my gosh. Horrors. Are, are you not? Yes, of course. Uh-huh. Uh, that's, well, uh, when I say the background of reality, what do you think I'm talking that about? That is no small step for there Richard There is no Hoban. small physics, of course. Why do you think it's so important that we reconnect with what Maxwell and those folks 100 years ago were trying to do? They were trying to invent this physics, reinvent it, rediscover it. And if something hadn't happened, which I'm beginning to strongly suspect was political, which was a deterrence to keep us from looking in all aspects at this set of possibilities, then we would be a 100 years further down the road to gaining an upper hand in how to use this, how to create appropriate technologies that would utilize it, how to basically understand the changes that are occurring and view them in a different perspective psychologically, than fearing change 
you know, this is why I don't totally agree with your saying that everything is going to hell in a handbasket. I see an awful lot of very positive things that are breaking out. For one thing, I keep getting faxes from lots of people asking questions who never asked questions before. Well, you misinterpret what I say. I'm not saying everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm saying that events of all natures are moving faster. Uh, you'll you'll discern that if you ever right. get to read my book. Well, if someone were to send me an autographed copy, I might get a chance to read I it. will send in, you an in, autographed in. copy. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, events in all categories of life, Richard, are um, uh, getting faster at a truly an exponential rate. Now, that includes some good things. It's not all bad. I'm just saying we're moving toward, you call it a node point or whatever, I call it, uh, some sort of event. It may be spiritual. Uh, I don't even rule that out. I mean, I look. Um... Let me give you an example why I talk about good things. If if half the stuff on SDSAD's tape now is ours, yeah, all right, some secret black project. Yes. Then all we have to do is get the damn car keys. Now, what is that going to do for us? It means that we have developed your tax dollars and mine a functioning hyperdimensional technology which isn't just used to kill people, which is what the LeMay types would have us believe is the only use for any of this stuff, but it's also free energy. It's also a way to feed everybody on the planet. It's a way to provide lighting and housing and all the things that people desperately need to live a halfway decent life. This technology, this insight, this physics, which we have bought and paid for, and is flitting around in Earth orbit. All right, again, try, trying to be fair to LeMay, there's a word called deterrence. Deterrence, yes. Deterrence. And uh, indeed, uh, reflecting on history, uh, though we got close, it worked. I mean, so far it's worked. Well, but Dart, again, you're, you're taking history as we've been given it through the official channels. Are you sure it worked? Are you sure the Cold War really existed at all? That it wasn't one huge shaggy dog story to keep us all occupied Well, the really important events of history were quietly going on underground and behind well, the scenes. Well, we, we've had an opportunity to crush uh, some SSA teams and other things that were clearly... Yeah, lots of neat toys that were never used. That, but they were clearly... Uh, they could have been used. Are you sure? Are um, you sure? Well... No, you're not sure. Well, am I sure, sure? Am I sure the MX would work? Um, no, 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 no. It's not that it would work. It's would it ever have been used? In other words, what I am laying out: if the space program has been a exquisite blind alley, yeah, that they've hidden, which is what, what you're really suggesting, found, which is what you're saying, which is what not only me is saying, but a lot of inside NASA folks who have the courage to stand up at a press conference and lay their careers on the line. More of them coming every day. All right, if that's true. What else might also be a blind alley? All right, we will consider that. Stay right where you are. It, uh, to get uh, my book, The Quickening, or Richard's materials, including the monuments of Mars, call 1-800-864-7991. I'm Art Bell, and this is CBC. North American Trading, America's trusted name in private hard assets. You don't have to be rich to own gold, just smart gold, gold, gold. Hey, you want to hear Art Bell sound just like Richard Hoagland? Watch this. Hey, Richard? Mm hmm? Did you know 
that gold is 19.5 times heavier than water? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't resist. <laughs> People, um, I want to talk for a second about this. When, when I have you on the air and we do a program as we are tonight, I get reactions that vary from, man, this guy is traveling on about nothing or this is boring, to, oh, my God, the light bulb went on. This is the most exciting thing I've ever heard. And it seems to depend on how people listen to you. If they really listen to you, they get it. If they just sort of casually have the radio on, they don't get it at all. It doesn't sink in. No light bulbs go on. And they just hear chatter. Uh, and I get a mix. There's no middle ground. Uh, they either seem to not get it or they completely get it. Have you noticed that? In, in the reaction that you get uh, to people who write to you? Well, yeah. I mean, over the last 15 years, there's been an extraordinarily broad segment of, of people that we've exposed, you know, our data to. Sure. And a lot of people, because we're not used to, in this culture, taking anything seriously, mm -hmm. except the Fed or, you know, New Gingrich's bank account or, you know, stuff like that, this does sound like it's coming from outer space to most people. They have no reference. Now, your audience is different because they're used to thinking about things that normally folks don't think about. It's true. But even so, as I said at the top of the show, you yourself do not often tell your audience when you're being serious as opposed to when you have things on that are just fun and games. And because we don't have an educational system that's worth anything in terms of discernment, in terms of figuring things out, what most people do is they listen for a familiar authority figure. Uh, the fact that Ted Koppel says nice things about me, uh -huh. that Arthur Clark says nice things about me, that Bob Jastrow says nice things about me. These are people that some people know and everybody knows Koppel. For a lot of people, it's going to be, oh, Ted Koppel says something. Maybe I should listen to him. Even though they haven't a clue as to what I'm talking about, it's just that Ted Koppel, an authority figure that they see every night on ABC, you know, acknowledge that I did something 20 years ago before NASA said it's, it's true, that puts you in a whole different ballpark. Yeah, how do you think that got to Mr. Koppel? Oh, I know exactly how. Well, how. well, tell us. How? Should I tell you? Well, yes. This reminds me of that old joke about, from my grandmother during, uh, during the Depression when there wasn't a lot of food and they were having guests over. And one of the young guys, one of the young kids, was, was trying to help with sitting up the table. And, and uh, my grandmother said to him, now, look, there really isn't enough. I want our guests to have seconds. So if I pass you the potatoes and I say, will you have some more, then you can have some more. If I pass them and I say, won't you have some more, that means there's not enough to go around. You're supposed to, you know, pass Decline, them on. Decline, yes. So dinner comes and dinner is served. And eventually my grandmother, you know, passes the potatoes around and says, you know, uh, won't you have some more? And he sits there and he looks at the ceiling and he says, let's see now, will I or won't I? <laughs> will I or won't I tell you how we got uh, information to Ted Koppel? Well, I'll have some more. Um, <laughs> we have known uh, Mr. Koppel for some years uh -huh. and his his uh, interest in our work has been more than casual behind the scenes. He's been looking at this. He told me once that uh, he could not believe 
that there could be the kind of conspiracy that I am talking about because since he's been in Washington for 25 years, if anything like this had been going on, he would know about it. You know, this is an extremely interesting position because it implies that just because you're Ted Koppel, you know everything that's going on. It's a very dangerous position. In fact, that's how media are manipulated, by giving them the illusion, you know, that if it's something important, they will be notified. They will, they will, it'll be leaked to them. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I mean, he says this in absolutely, you know, straight face sincerity. Yeah. This is what Ted firmly believes. That is dangerous. Yes. Um, when he properly acknowledged our priority in terms of the Europa material, um, I, I have it on excellent authority because a friend of mine was there that when he got into the elevator and, um, was going down to leave that, that uh, morning in his car, he uh, made the comment to this crowded elevator that a lot of other things that had been uh, revealed to him on the subject matter appeared to be coming true. So it looks like there has been a learning curve and a learning process at, at, uh, at you know, on, uh, underway even in Washington at major media levels. Um, my, my, my point of all this, Art, was you cannot listen to people based only on who you think they are. You have to listen to the words. You have to listen to the logic. You have sure. to actually follow the evidence, follow the reasoning, follow the paper trail. And if it's internally consistent and it's testable, and you can go out and verify pieces of it, even if you can't verify all of it, then you should look further. If you can't verify it, if none of it makes sense, then turn the dial. Nobody has to listen to me, all right? Well, that's right. They don't have to listen to you. Um, but to me, I do listen to you, and you do make sense to me. Sometimes it takes a while to get there, but you make sense to me. And so that I understand why some of the audience, particularly the newbies, are missing it, because they just don't stick with it long enough to to understand the point that you're trying to make. And to some... Getting there seems tedious, but these really are important points, and you can't just leap there, or you're going to really sound like a coop. You've got to lay the base, uh, or it doesn't mean anything. Well, in the judicial system, we all have this incredible experience, a la Simpson, of being reacquainted with our judicial system. Sure. There is a procedure called laying appropriate foundation. That's right. In a court of law, you cannot introduce evidence without laying appropriate foundation. What I try to do, Art, many times is to lay an appropriate foundation because I know that 99% of what I'm talking about for most people is like speaking Greek. They've never heard it before or certainly never heard it in this context. When I put together the material tonight for the web on uh, Tom Van Flandern's, you know, uh, material, a la Hale Bop, I had to put in a lot of background material to bring people who are going to come to this for the first time up on who Van Flandern is, commentary models, standard perceptions of the astronomical community, why we now think, looking at Hale-Bopp, we're seeing very striking, clear, if indirect evidence of these satellite fragments whirling around inside the nucleus. Have you had any reaction from uh, Alan Hale or anybody in the astronomical community beyond Van Flandren uh, with regard to this model? Well, he uh, and I talked, Tom and I talked, in fact, we talked earlier this evening, and we've been trying to get the Hubble people to turn Hubble 
toward the comet. The most extraordinary outrage is taking place, and I don't know quite what to do about it, so uh, we might have some thoughts before the end of the evening. Um, we had been told that because of the constraints of not pointing Hubble toward the sun and the geometry of the comet vis-a-vis -vis the Earth and all that, yes. that the next opportunity for Hubble to actually get close-ups of the comet will not be until August. Oh, my God. It's that moving. means it'll be gone. Yeah, it's moving away. Absolutely. Uh, very rapidly now. now. Because of the, of the nearness, you know, roughly one AU astronomical unit away, probably right. the Earth's distance to the sun. Right. And the size, the brightness, and the clarity of the various phenomena, I was very adamant that Tom should be pursuing inside NASA all efforts to get observations made of the nucleus with the extraordinary resolving power of this $2 billion instrument we've all paid for in Earth orbit. When I was at the Hayden Planetarium many years ago, uh, we had a comet come through called Kohotek. Yes. Remember Kohotek? Certainly. The first of what were termed comets of the century. Um, I remember the fuss everybody was, was making at that time. This was back in the, uh, let's see, early 1960s. 70s, all right, 73, 74, and uh, we had crews going up the Skylab right after the, the moon missions at that time, and it was such an extraordinary possibility of surveying a comet from airless space that I remember that the astronauts in the Skylab were doing observations and relaying them down to Houston by radio, taking pictures, taking quest stars, using solar instruments to make some observations of Kohotek, which was nowhere near as interesting as this extraordinary thing called Hale-Bopp. Right. Well, the other day when the shuttle astronauts were in, were in the shuttle in orbit, there was not one experiment or one mission directive or one reference by that crew to this comet. And even more astonishing, we have an instrument up there that was just serviced and upgraded with new instruments, mm. you know, Hubble. And I found out through sources that uh, Hal Weaver, who is a young astronomer at um, uh, in Baltimore at the Space Telescope Institute, who basically his beat is comets with, with Hubble. He was the one that directed the incredible Hubble shots of the impact of Shoemaker-Levy 9 on Jupiter. Right. Hal Weaver had applied to Dan Golden and the hierarchy at NASA to hide in the shadow of the Earth which would allow them to point close to the sun, which would be hidden by the Earth itself, and to get extraordinary close-ups of the intimate, exquisite details with the full resolving power and all the instruments aboard Hubble and had been turned down. Um, Tom Van Flandern, at my urging, tried to renew the request and go above Weaver and get to the people who were actually in charge of the decision and he was told literally uh, yesterday afternoon that they didn't do it because it would mean too many other observations would have to be postponed and there was no basic scientific value in it. No scientific value. Now, this is an outrage because it is, Hubble yes. is the only instrument in existence which could peer from Earth into the heart of this brilliant comet and could discern whether there is one object twirling on its axis or multiple objects. And as I've laid out in the last few minutes, if there are multiple objects, according to Van Flandern and his calculations, 
it means that these objects, these comets, are formed by an extraordinary event in solar system sure. history, sure. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the implications for astrophysics, for astronomy, geology, sociology, who we are, what's happened in the solar system, for everything, is profound. Now, I cannot believe in, in real conscience that they're telling Tom the truth. I think they have taken this data, and it's one of those things that is being kept secret and away from the people who are paying for this mission. Okay, Richard, at the... Um possible expense of myself going out on a limb again, there are still reports coming in of very anomalous things occurring with regard to Hale-Bopp. I sent you a couple of faxes, I think, earlier tonight about it. Mm -hmm. And um, because, I suppose, of the big hubbub, uh, they're being buried, they're not being talked about, but there are many anomalous things about Hale-Bopp. And to imagine that they're not taking their best shot with their best facility to take a look at this and settle this very important argument. Well, Tom is, was talking with the operations director of the of the telescope this afternoon. For some reason, they bumped him over, you know, one receptionist to another, and he got to talk to the guy who actually designs the observations. And he admitted that they've now worked out a procedure whereby they can cheat on this close aiming toward the sun so they didn't have to hide in the shadow of the Earth as the, as the spacecraft would sail into the shadow and have about five minutes of clear viewing. They can look at Hale-Bopp from the day side of the Earth, meaning they could have a half an hour or three-quarters of an hour observation. But they're, they're not, not doing, doing it. it. Now, I think this is an outrage, and I'll tell you what I would like to do. I would like some of those 15 million open-minded people who follow you every night, Art, mm -hmm. to pick up their fax machines and to put in a piece of paper and to send it to Dan Golden at NASA headquarters. I would like NASA to know that the American taxpayer thinks this is an egregious abridgment of the, of the normal procedure whereby science is addressed in this country now, which is at the taxpayer's expense. So clearly you're saying they can image Hubble there technically no without, without technically. risk. Without, without risk. risk, with no problem. And they're not doing it. They're not doing it. At least that's what they're saying they're not doing. In fact, I don't think anybody in their right mind would let this opportunity go by and not bring all those instruments to bear on extraordinary problems which have incredible implications even if you discount Van Flandern totally. So then you think they're doing it and we're not getting the data. Exactly. Good. And what I would like to do is have a whole set of faxes show up on, on Dan Golden's carpet because then I can direct media people like Ted Koppel to ask Mr. Golden why, in God's name, aren't you taking some data mm -hmm. and see what he says. Remember, Ted Koppel is my friend now. He thinks I'm well, right about something. Be careful here. Okay. <laughs> be careful. Well, look, Art, it's only good if you use it. Oh, no, it you're right. It doesn't do any damn good if you don't no, use you're, it. No, you're right. I, it's, it's like uh, political capital. There's Precisely. no question about it. You've got to use it. You've got to use it. But be careful about calling Ted your friend. I mean, he said something nice about you, but look out for tomorrow. Well, uh, actually, I have new data. There's another data point. All right. Another data point we shall get to shortly. If you would like Richard Hoagland's material, uh, and a good starting point, I think, would be the Monuments of Mars, um, or you would like an assigned first edition, that is an autographed copy, first edition of my book, 
which is now only going to be available for a few more days. That's how fast it's... And the whole first printing is going to be gone. Either way, for Richard's materials or my new book, The Quickening, you can call 24 hours a day, 1-800-864-7991. That's 1-800-864-7991. From the high desert... This is CBC. The Talk Station, AM 1500 KSTP. calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. Good morning, everybody. Richard C. Hoagland is my guest, and this morning's program has not been, as you can tell, a caller-driven program. Uh, we may get to a few calls here, I don't know. Uh, I've got something that I think Richard is going to uh, very much enjoy in a moment, or maybe not. It is a fresh Associated Press report, and maybe he can explain it. I sure can. Time 6060. All right. Uh, what I'm going to do is read an Associated Press story, clear the wire at 3.09 a.m., sent to me by Robert, uh, my affiliate uh, at KQMS. It's entitled, Physicists Theorize Space is Not the Same in All Directions. Far from a random jumble of galaxies in empty space, two physicists now say the universe may have an ordered Structure. The Kansas and New York scientists say they studied scores of distant galaxies and they found that radio signals from one part of the heavens acted differently than those from other parts. Essentially, they say the universe has structure that extends billions of light years across space. The discovery, should it hold, could have any number of explanations according to the researchers among them that the Big Bang, that many believe created the universe, was not a uniform blast, but in effect bulged out in more than one direction. Or it could mean there's some physical force that scientists have previously overlooked. Their theory will be published Monday in the journal Physical Review Letters. Richard, what, do you, what, what does that mean? Well, you know that there's been a long discussion um, for the last ten years or so about so-called dark matter, right? Yes. Uh, dark matter, for those that don't know what we're talking about, is matter that's dark. It's invisible. 
stars shine by internal energy sources, right? Right. Planets shine by reflected light. Mm-hmm. The only planets we can see are those in the solar system. Anything beyond the solar system, if it's not shining by its own internal luminosity, its own energy source, they ain't going to see it. Well, we have detected a few only by their passage in front of light sources. Um, yeah, well, those events are extremely controversial because it depends on, well, they're, they're just rare and controversial. Yes. We do see in, in the galaxy, in this spiral pinwheel, about 100,000 light years across, uh, clouds of gas and dust. The dust is shining by reflected light. But by and large, the stuff we see in the rest of the universe, if it isn't self-luminous, we don't see it. Right. Um, about 20 years ago, a young astronomer named Virginia Trimble, uh, I'm sorry, Vera Rubin, not Virginia Trimble, Vera Rubin, was measuring rotations of galaxies using a technique that we don't have to get into. Mm-hmm. And she discovered that galaxies are rotating very differently than had been predicted by all previous models. When you look at the solar system, which is shaped kind of like a very thin disk with the planets all orbiting in one plane, mm-hmm. Mercury goes around the sun every 88 days. Pluto goes around in 248 years, mm-hmm. and they're about 4 billion miles apart. Mm-hmm. In other words, the inner planets are racing around, <laughs> and the outer planets move very slowly. Very this slow. is this is because of something called Kepler's Third Law. Well, astronomers like Dr. Rubin expected that when we look deep into the universe and we're looking at rotations of whole galaxies, that galaxies like solar systems, like our solar system, would revolve with the central part spinning very fast around the center mm-hmm. and the outer edges trailing very far behind and moving very slowly. In fact, what Vera and her colleagues discovered was that galaxies, unlike solar systems, rotate essentially like LP records, like solid objects, even though they're composed of billions and billions of separate stars and a lot of other stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Meaning that the outer parts go around in the same period of time that the inner parts go around which from known laws of physics was impossible. Yes. So using that known law, which was basically Newton's theory of gravitation, there came into being the idea that, well, to account for these anomalous rotations, there had to be more stuff in the galaxy that could be accounted for by the luminous stars. And they modeled how it was distributed and how much there was and where it was above and below the plane and all that. Ultimately, it turned out that to account for the rotations of galaxies that are observed all over space now by spectroscopes and big telescopes, including Hubble, 99% of the matter in the universe that accounted for these rotations had to be totally invisible. Now, where am I going with this? Well, here's the point. The whole theory, the whole chain of logic for proposing that there is all this dark matter that has never been observed directly, Art. There's not one test, one observation where you can say, okay, there it is. 
It's all indirect, and it's the motions of matter we can see in terms of the presence, the inferred presence of stuff of matter that we can't see. And the, and the connection, the glue, is the Newtonian laws of motion. Now, here's an interesting wrinkle. Suppose Newton is wrong. Suppose over the enormous distance scales, Tom Van Planner goes into this in his book a bit, over enormous distance scales, gravity does not behave the way it does above the Earth or in the solar system. But in fact, there are different scaling laws when you get into truly immense distances, thousands of light as opposed to, you know, uh, a few light hours or a few light seconds. If that were true, it would mean that the motions that, that they're seeing of these galaxies are, in fact, observable or a, a, a explainable by not invoking that 99% of the universe is composed of matter that has never been seen and can never be seen. In other words, we're proposing the existence of something based solely on a theory. And if the theory is wrong, the observational conclusions will be incorrect, and you'll go down the wrong canyon. So it's interesting that these guys are going to publish a paper which says that if you look in certain directions in space, the signals somehow are different than they are here. I obviously don't know any of the details. I need to read the paper. But what it seems to me to be approaching is the hyperdimensional model which says that space the structure of space, the reality of space, the laws of physics themselves are uniquely determined by what's going on in terms of mass rotating in that region of space, and that all of the space can't be viewed as uniform with the laws the same all over simultaneously from one end of the universe, whatever that means, to the other. Yeah, I really thought you might say that. Oh, it was just a guess. Oh, just just an average guess. Yeah, just an average guess. Uh, or maybe part of the, you're paying close attention. Maybe I've been interviewing you long enough. I that, guess you have. Uh, do you want to take a couple of calls? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's do that. Feedback will be useful to see if anybody's been listening. Uh, oh, I think. Keep talking about these 15 million people, but so far they don't show up. Oh, they've been ringing the phones all night. Wildcard line, you're on the air with Richard C. Holborn. Hi. Mr. Bell. Yes. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Where are you? This is Robert, San Joaquin Valley, California. Yes. Uh, yes, Mr. Holden, it's a distinct honor to talk with you, sir. And I uh, I would say that I'm sure you recall last year, Wednesday, August the 7th, 1996, is a day in history. Sir? Do you, Richard? Wednesday, August. Oh, of course, because that was the NASA press conference. That was the ALH 84001 when they announced the microfossil from Mars. Yes, sir. And uh, David McKay, the uh, geochemist of NASA's Johnson Space Center, yes. and he and his team said that they are convinced that there was life on Mars. And I congratulate you, sir. They're finally catching up. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank uh, you very much, sir. Thank you very much for the call. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hi. Hi, Art. Steve from South Dakota. Hello, Steve. Ah, hi, Steve. Hi, Richard. How are you? I won't give your secret away. No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I, I never wonder, wonder what secret we're talking about. Steve what? has been independently researching some of the lunar data, and at a future time arc, he has some pretty interesting things to lay out, both on our website and maybe in a program with you. Okay. Thank you. Independent confirmations to be avidly sought. Yes, sir. Uh, the, my, uh, you know, radio sort of faded out when I thought I heard you say, Richard, that the SDS-80 video would be made available to the public? Yep. We're going to make them both available. We now have the first generation of SDS-48, which we didn't have when I did the extension of the UN. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to do is a composite tape with analysis and computer overlays and this critical assessment by this team of aerospace professionals who literally worked out all the rendezvous equations and have worked with our space hardware for the last 30 years. And when they say this stuff is doing things that can't be done, people will believe them because they're the guys who got us to and from the moon, among other things, right. with old-fashioned rockets. Whatever we're looking at in this video, it ain't rockets. Right. Uh, second question. I sent a four-page fact to you just a little while ago on some NASA JPL pictures of the Yes, yes uh, I got it. And uh, uh, they were put in there by the director of publications, of, you know, Mrs. Anderson, who incidentally I'm going to send a fax to to respectfully request that she and the you know, company access your you know, paper. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a picture of uh, low-bait flows with volcanic vents on the moon. On, on Europa. Yeah. How can that be possible? Well, it may be that this so-called planet-wide ocean or satellite-wide ocean that we've been talking about, that I was talking about, may not be planet-wide. There may actually be pieces of solid stuff sticking up, i.e. continents, mm -hmm. in which case we have an even more eerie analog to Earth in terms of Europa, and that pretends a whole other discussion, which we're, we have no time to get into tonight. Sure. Well, I hope to talk to you soon, and thank you, and thanks a lot, Art. Thank you, Steve. Uh, take care. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hi. Good morning, Art. Thank you from Seattle. Seattle, yes, sir. And, uh, well, uh, I was trying to issue a couple of dates. My name is Boris. We pay attention from Russia originally. I can barely hear you, Boris. He's from Russia. Correct. I am from Russia, and I'm a freelance photographer. And I've been uh, here for seven years, and I was trying to actually somehow advertise the video I shot a long time ago in Moscow. It's 99 and 90. What is the video of? Well, a bunch of UFO activity in Moscow. It was widespread in Europe. Well, I would be very interested in that video, so if you would send it to me, um... I would, uh, I'd be glad to take a look. How's that? Uh, well, the sound is great, but I want to tell you one story. Uh, you probably heard about Real TV. I'm sorry? Real TV, right? Real TV, yes. Right. So I sent a tape to them. I talked to the folks, and uh, they called them back and said, unfortunately, we cannot accept it right now because we don't have much interest for you folks. All right. Well, if you will send it to me, I, I will show some interest and watch it and, and pass it on to other people. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hi. Hi, this is Mel from Chicago. Chicago, yes, sir. So, uh, question, what's your opinion about the uh, upcoming polar shift? Because there is going to be one. All right, Richard, uh, does a polar shift at any point, um, assume part of the model if things continue in a direction that we hope they don't? 
Well, we know there have been shifts in the past. The problem is the precision of predicting when they will occur in the future. Sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to get precision in terms of times. Uh, all we can say is it happened before and they will happen again. The problem is spinning down low. All right. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Richard C. Holman. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hey, is this, who is this? Well, who, who are you calling? Oh, I'm calling you, but I'm totally shocked that I got through. Okay, see. Okay. Um, you, uh, the radio's on, so I thought, and I didn't. Turn it off. Oh, yeah, okay. I turned it off. Okay. Um, I have something interesting that, well, might interest you guys. I, I'm from Auburn, Washington. Yes. Okay. Um, there's a super mall here, um, that has the, um, the, the, uh, Old Navy right here. Okay. Okay. Um, um, now this is really pissing me off because I can't remember the, um, I think it was a star with a circle around it. There yeah. was a, uh, thing above the sign that was in the mall. Can you go and photograph it? Absolutely. Send me the picture. Oh yeah, but I wait, I have a real, I have a story I have to tell you because it, it's very, very interesting. I walked in there and, um, because I heard what you said about it before, and we tried to call that number, you know, and um, it said that there weren't any stores in that area. So, because um, we were in Bellingham then. Right. We were in Bellingham because we were staying up with some friends. We, we heard your program, we just called it, and it instantly said, blah, blah, you know, there's no stores in this area. But, okay, so I went to the mall the other day. I walked in there, and there was a woman with, um, she looked like, or she had headphones on, and plus she had, like, a hip pack on, like, black. Uh-huh. Stuff. I don't know, like, it looked like maybe there was a battery holder and stuff for her headpiece or something, but right. she was, like, decked head. It was just weird. And she never looked up at me or anything, but I asked her, she was, like, really rude, you know, and I thought, that's really strange that she would be standing right in the doorway because, you know, it can do anything about, like, selling stuff, you know, that that kind of a look would scare uh-huh. people away. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You know, and um, so it was just weird because I went in. She never looked up at me once, not even once. No eye contact, but I, I just decided to leave. But I, I said, well, can you tell me what the nearest bathroom is? Because I'm four months along pregnant. And I first I had to go to the bathroom at the wrong time. But she goes, yes. She goes, the closest one is right outside the doorway, down the hall, and to the right. So before, which is stupid, what I did is I did exactly what she said, but I went down this hallway in the mall thinking, you know, she's a hallway in the mall. Never looking up to see what the hallway sign said above where I was going, right? I went down this hallway. I swear to you, this is 100% true story. I have no reason to lie. I went down this hallway, which had cameras, you know, like cameras when you see in the mall, in the hallways. Um, but then I took a left because then it did say down there that there was a bathroom. And I saw um, two rooms, huge rooms with cast iron, like steel doors. And they said that there was there's showers shower rooms, which I don't know why they have in the mall, but I'm just telling you everything I saw down there. Then I saw um, someone opening a door. I was a man dressed like she was, but it was a man. I mean, he had this head set on, too, mm-hmm. and there was a whole bunch of men in there. I didn't see any women. I don't know what that has to do with it, but I just saw a bunch of men. They were all wearing this kind of headset like her. What were they doing? I have no idea. I can only tell you that I saw one the reason I Hello? Were they sitting at desks or consoles? No, no, walking. They're walking, and I couldn't see. See, I only saw in there because I'm walking towards the bathroom. So one of them walks into this room. He opens the door, so I just see a crack. Mm -hmm. 
So no, I was no one showed me in or anything. Um, but I thought it was really strange, and I thought it was strange that um, there were shower rooms and there was hundreds of rooms down there that weren't they didn't like they did they weren't end pieces. You know, like I've worked in the mall before, and I've worked like you'd walk out of the back of the office and you'll say, you know, enter this exit or whatever to go back into your own little store. You know, and they they weren't marked like the stores. Well, there you go, Richard. Let's just keep asking questions. Uh, it is the strangest, most unusual story. We might have time for one more. Wild Card Line, you're on the air with Richard Hogan. Hi. Good morning, General. Uh, this is Dan from Gardena, California. Yes, Dan. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Richard. Yes, sir. Uh, I was wondering if you could please explain what rods are. I've heard about them, but I'm not really... Sure. Okay, I don't think Richard is up on rods, are you? I didn't even hear what he said. Rods. He asked if you would explain rods. Uh, it's something that another researcher is uh, looking into named Jose Escamilla. No, I don't. All right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hello. Yeah, this is uh, Rich calling from South Carolina. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was uh, wondering about the A-10 plane. Is it possible that maybe different kind of bombs than, than what they're telling us? Would be on that airplane, not 500-pound bombs, but something more dire, Richard? Uh, well, I mean, you can pack a tactical nuke in, in anything. Sure. Uh, but why would they be out with a training exercise with a guy? I mean, that doesn't make sense. No, I agree. All right, we're at the end of another program. Oh, um, no, already? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right. You must understand that from, from the way the sun is coming up. Back that's, in, oh, that's what that stuff was coming. Oh, I, I wondered. It was getting light out. Huh? Anyway, you've done it again. Yeah, well, you've done it again. Thank you, Richard. And as always, it's not a goodbye. It's until next time, and I have a feeling that's not going to be far away. I do, too. Uh, so keep us informed, please, on the STS-80 business. Thank you, Richard. Good night, my friend. And good night to America, wherever you are. Oh, uh, well, good boy, he's learned. He can do it. All right, that's it, folks. From the high desert, I'm Art Bell. To all of you, a good night.